Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. It's a podcast where we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I'm a film critic for Bloody Disgusting and The Rap, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and whatever other source will have me. People write in and call me Rockmeister McCool. Because they're badass, and, and so are you. And if I live a century, I'll never live up to that name. <laughs> anyway, here on the Iron List, uh, this is a monthly podcast where uh, we, Whitney Seibold and myself, we are film critics, and we recommend our ten favorite or the ten best, or theoretically the ten worst, uh, movies based on polls that we run on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Critically acclaimed network. We run a poll a month. We do a podcast a month. And this month, uh, our wonderful, beloved, very attractive patrons uh, selected the best fantasy movies that aren't part of a major franchise. And I think that's a really important distinction because for whatever reason, fantasy is one of those genres that does spectacularly well in a small handful of successful movie and TV series, mm. but all, everything else does really badly. Usually people do not accept it. People do not tend to flock to it. It's just, it's I, I, there's I, I, a lot I would more, argue that, but yeah, there's um, a lot more in terms of box office. There's a lot more misses than hits in the fantasy genre. Well, not here recently. I mean, we, we grew up, uh, we were both kids in the 1980s. I was, I was born in the late seventies. You were born in the early eighties. And that was the time when like, I think thanks to Star Wars largely and also Close Encounters and mm. uh, just the way technology was evolving, uh, special effects-based films became kind of de rigueur. And, yeah. uh, All of a sudden, visual gigantic, effects yeah. actually looked good enough mm -hmm. that you could take fantasy and sci-fi films seriously as opposed well, to yeah. having to sort of take everything like, yeah, we can see the string. Like, well, there was there was a yeah, just a, a lot of uh, previously unrealizable things could now be realized, yeah, and, and there was cool. a big explosion of fantasy films that are still celebrated to this day. Um, you know, you're looking at you're looking at some of the big fantasy films from the 1980s that are now being rebooted. You got stuff like your Dark Crystals, for instance. Yeah. That's that's now a new TV series on Netflix. Yeah, very acclaimed um, one, no less. Very acclaimed really like one. I, I watched it for five minutes and I turned it off. <laughs> it's like I, it's like there there is nothing here that is going to interest me. I didn't really uh, grow up with Dark Crystal. Like I watched mm -hmm. it when I was a kid, but I always thought it was really off putting that the protagonist. Mm -hmm. Was a puppet. I always thought it might be would have been stronger if the protagonist was a human. Maybe uh, that's me. I don't know. I just for whatever mm. reason I could never get behind the protagonist's journey. It always well, just well, uh, struck me as. Well, we'll talk about the Dark Crystal in a little bit. Oh, uh, will but, we? Yeah, there there was um, you know other fil another Henson film. There was Labyrinth, uh, yeah. and you also had you know your Superman sequels and mm -hmm. you know uh, Steven Spielberg was working at the height Conan of his powers. Movies, yeah, you know. There was a lot of really highly acclaimed, really highly celebrated fantasy films, and even you could look at something like Ghostbusters. You know, they had the technology to do this sort of fantasy conceit within what is more or less a blue collar working man comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, but that a film like Ghostbusters wouldn't have worked if they didn't have really powerful fantasy elements to work with. Right. And again, the visual so, effects necessary to make them the, look good and plausible. Uh, so by by the end care. by the end of the nineteen eighties, I think audiences had gotten mighty sick of it. And a lot mm -hmm. of the, the fantasy films of the nineteen nineties weren't really well celebrated, especially when it came to like big special effects based blockbusters. You had stuff like mm -hmm. 
Independence Day. Well, hold on. Uh, that, a, that was a huge hit, and people really liked it at the time. That that's mm. a bad example. No, also, pe- I would also argue, hated it. At the also, time, Independence but... Day is a sci-fi film. Yeah, yeah technically well, it's a sci-fi. Film. When you think of the fantasy mm. films of the '90s, actually, wait a minute. What were the fantasy films? Yeah, there weren't many. Were there? Yeah, like the big ones. Not a lot. Mm. I think it's just the genre was hard to nail down. Mm. There were a couple of dramatic attempts, like Dragonheart was a, a that's right. Dragonheart is a really big thing, and at the time. The CGI dragon in Dragonheart, Draco, played by Sean Connery, was one of, if not the most complicated CGI visual effects ever put on screen. Mm. He it was, was a fully CGI character who interacted with, um, was it Dennis Quaid? Dennis Quaid was the knight, yeah. or the dragon hunter. Yeah, that was a big deal. And now, of course, it looks, you know, charmingly mm. retro at best, and maybe, mm. you know, a little, a little clunky at worst, but... You know, for whatever reason, Dragonheart, although it has some straight-to-video sequels, just didn't take off. Yeah. I blame the fact that there's only one dragon in it. <laughs> so I was, you want to see a lot of dragons? I saw the movie, and I'm like, what the fuck? It's about, the, it's about the last dragon. But it's that's the not as interesting. That's not as interesting that's as an, there being more than the, one dragon. The final dragon? That's an interesting story. It and they're intelligent, and they speak. It and, struck yeah. me, and we've talked about time cop recently. Well, it mm-hmm. struck me that there were a lot of sci-fi fantasy films that were specifically engineered so that there were as few expensive things in it as humanly possible, <laughs> so that everything that I wanted to see on screen mm-hmm. Couldn't be on screen. No. So Time Cop, you want Jean-Claude Van Damme traveling through time, kicking ass? Okay, he's going to go to the Great Depression mm. and five years ago. There you go. Fuck, what? What are you doing? I want to see him in the Gladiator Arena. I want to mm. see him kicking Robert E. Lee's ass. Well, you, you, I want to like... You want, him to, you want it to be Time Bandits is what you yeah, want it to be. More well, like Time Bandits anyway. Uh, but... By the time we got to the 2000s, there was a one-two punch of two very successful fantasy films. There was the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, mm-hmm. and there was also uh, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, those yeah. were both big hits, both big special effects, blockbusters. Giant franchises. Uh, yeah, gigantic franchises. Uh, a fair spe- number of special effects. Yeah, special effects started to improve. CGI wasn't as clunky by at that point, mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, and a lot of people just really sort of gathered around those, and that sort of ushered in the way for just the gigantic fantasy blockbuster era that we're still living through. And yet, I feel like the gigantic... Again, you got your Star Warses and your Avengerses, and those I, are again, know, I would fantasy argue, pictures. I would so. argue that Star Wars is sci-fi fantasy, because it's not really a fantasy tropes to speak yeah, of in a conventional it's, sense. It's splitting hairs, but... Yeah. It's splitting hairs, whatever, but I think the fact that there are spaceships makes it a little different. Mm. And I would argue that uh, the Marvel Universe, like goes out of its way to make sure it's clearly science fiction. Even when you have a sorcerer, mm. it's a science that people don't understand. Even when you have gods, mm. they're aliens who just happen to be named Thor and Odin. It's like the stupidest part of that but stuff. It, but uh, regardless, it's something that they've really doubled down on, and as a result, I would be I would hesitate to call those films fantasy films mm. unless you count fantasy as anything that doesn't exist in which case that's all fiction and then i think we're really splitting airs well, well when I, I mean you have like gigantic green rage monsters and flying knights guess, and spider humans these are all like mythic figures and you could say the same thing about frankenstein and mm. that is still a science fiction book isn't it I call it a horror book. I'm not sure but, if I'd call it a science fiction book. But the origin book, of the right? monster is through science. You you yourself have argued mm. 
that when Jason Voorhees was zombified mm. in Friday the 13th Part 6, that because he was struck by lightning, a la Frankenstein, mm. that's science, not <laughs> yes, magic. You're right. He's, so He's not supernatural yet. So I think once you inject science, like hard science, like anything that's like seriously mechanical or has mm. to do with technology, technology yeah. or physics as we know it, mm. uh, I think then that crosses the line and it stops being, to me, something that would qualify for this list. So to put it another way, if we were including horror franchises, and I didn't, you mm. could, but that's your call, um, Freddy Krueger is fantasy. Okay. 100% fantasy in every version. Jason Voorhees is not fantasy, and then, by your own admission, <laughs> science. So, Well, until, I think, set part seven. Oh, no, wait, uh, no. Se- seven no, is... No, seven or- has psychic powers, but that's still science, because someone's actually researching that. That's right. Nine yeah. has hell. Nine is where that's he true. goes Nine, to hell. Where he's actually, like, a supernatural being. Yeah. His, like, but... soul is, like, jumping from body to body. But then he's crossing over with Nightmare on Elm Street, so yeah. that's just a science fiction character meeting a fantasy character, isn't it? Well, that's not until Freddy versus Jason. Well, but at the end of Jason goes to hell, oh, Freddy's glove that was just up. That was just a cute little But it's gag. in there. It's in there. Oh, my goodness. Is it not canon? No, I don't count that kind of stuff. <laughs> I will categorically state that. I don't count that kind of stuff as some sort of legit crossover. Anyway, when it came time to pick my own... And and let's talk about our criteria Mm. real fast. Uh, When it came time to pick my ten fantasy uh, uh, movies, Mm. they could be based on pre-existing things. I allowed that, but I didn't want any of them to have sequels. I thought that that would be my rule. They could be remakes. They could be adaptations. I might have have one that, in fact, is not eligible by those rules. Well, if it's not a hit. Like, maybe you've had one that didn't do well. I'll let it slide. Okay. Um, But, uh, like, for example, I'm not going to put Chronicles of Narnia on there. I'm Mm. not going to put Star Wars on there, which I wouldn't anyway. Uh, I'm not going to put, yeah, a lot of things on there. Uh, I also decided that when it comes time to deciding what is fantasy and what is not you know, there's some nebulous stuff on there. I mean, arguably, anything with ghosts is fantasy. Well, uh, but I decided that would technically, for me, veered more into a horror subgenre. Okay. You know, like ghost, you could argue, is a fantasy story. But for me, it's I, stories I, of the I afterlife. Yeah. It's got more of a religious connotation. And um, Ghostbusters is a bit more of a horror comedy yeah, connotation. I, when it comes to, like, I mean, fantasy, when, as a critic, when I'm writing about a film, I'll use the word fantasy pretty brazenly. I, you know, I, I would describe in print a uh, film like Ghostbusters as fantasy, if I'm re- really just sort of coming down to it. I would, I would but, use the word fantastical. Um, that would Perhaps. be what uh, I would do instead. However, in conversation and when we refer to at, like fantasy as a genre, I think we all know what we're talking about. Dungeons and Dragons. We're, we're, we're talking about, yeah, yeah. The, the Gygaxian yeah. uh, fantasy. Are there elves? The, the, the Tolkienian. Yeah, they're the sort of. Yeah imaginary version of England in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I will I will allow uh, mythological stuff yeah. as well. Like Greek myth, that's mm-hmm. okay too. Uh, but anyway, these are our rules. We make them up, yeah. uh, to paraphrase the great George Carlin. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, as with all of our iron lists, we don't go in any particular order just because we find the order pretty arbitrary. We're going to go mm-hmm. down our, fa- our each of our top tens, mm-hmm. and we are going to end up with the film where, if pressed, if you put a gun to our head, we would call it our favorite. Okay. So that's where it starts. And uh, Whitney, why don't you take us, uh, right, well, take us away? I'll, I'll start with the film. I'll, I'll start with the film that I think might not be eligible, and you can boot it off the list if you feel this, okay. this doesn't count. But it was a film that was very dear to me when I was a young child. I think it captures uh, the spirit of the book better than any of the films that remade it, but it was Rankin Bass's The Hobbit from 1977. Uh, 
You know what? Fuck it. I'll just let you have it. Okay. Because it, it did have animated sequels made by other directors. Was Here's the Hobbit a made for TV movie? No, the original it, Hobbit? It was was the I, never, I never yeah. saw it. Yeah. For, it was from 1977. It's an animated yeah. film. Orson Bean played uh, Bilbo Baggins. Thanks to Peter Jackson, you know the story. Uh, Peter Jackson even made that story. He made this short animated film into like three two and a half hour films. Which was completely misguided, and he, and he decided to shoot in high frame rate, which was going to revolutionize movies by making them look worse. Uh, <laughs> I think high frame rate. There's still something there that we can play with somewhere, but we haven't figured we it haven't, out. Yeah, we yeah. haven't cracked. We haven't cracked. Listen, Ongi's going to keep doing it until he gets it right. We invented 3D as we know it. Mm. I mean, they've been playing with 3D since the silent era, actually. But uh, 3D as we know it really kicked off in the public in the 1950s. Mm. There were some 3D films, but I would argue that we didn't really get 3D right, if indeed we ever have, until, like... Avatar. Around right? Avatar. Yeah, Avatar, or at least the films well, in its and way. Then, and then Avatar kind of ushered in this brief, kind of embarrassing period of film history, where mm-hmm. they tried to retrofit certain films that weren't even shot in 3D, and they were shooting shooting films in 3D that... One of the... They weren't even being shot well in 3D. One like of the, the worst the filmmakers didn't know how to shoot that way. One of the only ones of the one of the one of those films in that wave that, to get it right was the remake of My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, because uh, there that was, was reason it. about yeah. it. Like one of the first things people do in that movie is spit on the audience. They spit. They were like reaching out. There's a, a, a shot where somebody like waves a gun in front of the camera and the gun barrel goes right yeah. in front of your eyes. That movie's great. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Uh, for me, the worst like 3D experience I had in that era was the remake of Clash of the Titans, which oh, is golly, a which yeah. is a terrible movie movie to begin with mm. like it's just a really badly constructed nothing makes any sense the character arcs are terrible the mm. plot is ridiculous more so than even the original which was ridiculous <laughs> to begin with but uh, yeah the 3d oh yeah. i i wish i could recreate that experience just so people could see just how bad it was because you're just gonna have to take it on faith man there were floating heads like things were terrible uh, I saw a film called what was it called Wet Gold or no that's a Wet Sh- Gold. Not, there's a Brooke, Sh- Brooke Shields movie. I saw this really awful 3D film. There is a, there is a Brooke Shields movie called Wet Gold, but um, oh, that sounds that's a terrible. That's really the but, worst title I've ever heard. <laughs> I think it's a heist movie. Um, but yeah, I saw this other like crime heist movie that had something gold in the title. I saw it over at the Crest. It was the last film I ever saw there before they closed mm. down. But the 3D was so bad. It's like the sky would would stand out while the horizon was like in the background. It's oh, like they're, they're weird. Just, they got it all wrong that's in that so one. Weird. Anyway, uh, but. I'm I'm glad we didn't have to deal with all of that technological rigmarole when dealing with the Rankin Bass Hobbit movie because yeah. I feel like it took a lot of the uh, the story of the Tolkien book, uh, The mm-hmm. Hobbit, which I, I had also read when I was a kid, and brought this really interesting spin to it. I think there wasn't a lot of really cliched fantasy imagery. I think they went out of their way to make things look sort of unique. I think the one uh, thing is that Gandalf is a wizard in a pointy hat. I think it's the one yeah, like the, the one pointy made. hat. Yeah. But yeah, everything else look like the the elves have like their they have like gray skin and the the mm-hmm. the crowns they wear aren't like physical objects. It's like a halo of lights that just sort of float around their heads. Yeah, cool. uh, the, the goblins are like these big gray warty things that are like one third mouth. The the uh, mm-hmm. And and even Bilbo Baggins was like sort of this cherubic little guy with a round head. Yeah, he and didn't look like a short person. He yeah, looks like he looks a like creature. a hobbit. Yeah. That's what a hobbit looks like to me. You know, it's sort of like the big glowing eyes and uh, and of course the best design was this the weird wicked newt man golem that lives like in a rock cave. Well, I would argue the best uh, design is smog. 
I, oh well, yeah. Smog is a great dragon. I, I, the, the dragon in the Peter Jackson one's yeah. pretty cool, but man, the smog, the smog in in that animated film looks like he'd put on like a pimp hat. It's like <laughs> he uh, he looks like uh, he just looks awesome. He looks awesome. Okay. Really, he, he looks like a badass. <laughs> okay. Uh, I love that version. Mm. I grew up with that on TV. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, and I think that what I love about that version is that they're just adapting the book. The mm. Hobbit is a short book. The Hobbit is a very direct book. There aren't mm. a lot of digressions in The Hobbit. There's really nothing of consequence in the book that isn't in that Rankin-Bass version, and it's under an hour and a half. <laughs> like, it's, and it's, it flies, mm. it's great, it doesn't feel rushed, it actually takes its time in certain places. Um, I love that version to pieces. Um, I, I, I would argue that's a weird franchise, because what happened with that was is mm. Rankin-Bass did The Hobbit. Yeah. Ralph Bakshi did The Lord of the Rings, which was unrelated to the Rankin-Bass version at the yeah, time. Yeah, it, it was, was just, just another adaptation. Yeah, I don't just think the, they're... They're not technically part of the same film series. No. They're just two animated adaptations and, of those books. And I love Ralph Bakshi's adaptation of Lord of the Rings, actually. It's very mm-hmm. odd in some respects. But in some respects, I actually think it's better than some of the stuff Peter Jackson does. Mm-hmm. I also think some of the stuff Peter Jackson does is better than what Ralph Bakshi does. It's just it's, it's good to watch them both, I think, if you like mm-hmm. the series. Um, but Lord of the Rings was only half the story. Ralph Bakshi's version, and uh, it wasn't a hit. It didn't make money. So he never did his second half. So Rankin-Bass did a sequel to his Lord of the Rings in more of the Rankin-Bass style called The Return of the King. Yeah. Which is very odd, actually, if you watch them all together. It has a really bad reputation. I think it's better than it gets credit for, but it's still... um, I mean, it's rushed. They're, they're like, cramming a lot in. It feels a lot cheaper than the other two. Yeah, Yeah, it's not bad, though. There was a lot... Actually, I didn't put any Rankin-Bass movies... Hmm. On my list, but there's a fair number that could have of the. I didn't grow up with the Last Unicorn. I yeah. think if I had, it would be on my list. Yeah, but I finally I, watched it as an adult, and that's a very fascinatingly dreary film. <laughs> it's a very depressed <laughs> fantasy movie for yeah. kids, and I respect that. I'm also a big fan of Flight of Dragons, uh, which it's is really an, obscure. It's yeah. it's obscure. They finally put it out on DVD a couple of years ago, but it's about a um, a nerd. A nerd, like a Dungeons and Dragons nerd, who winds up in his Dungeons and Dragons type game, but uh, because he's super nerdy, when he he ends up in the body of a dragon, and he starts treating it scientifically, and he's trying to figure out how everything works mm-hmm. and makes sense. How am I making fire? Oh, so I can like the, one of the reasons I can fly when I'm this large is because I actually breathe a kind of gas that's actually you know has an uplift Buoyant, to it. Yeah, okay, but that gas is slightly when I exhale, it becomes flammable, and I've actually got these things in the back of my throat instead of a uvula that kind of click together and make sparks, and I can ignite. That's neat, <laughs> and I appreciated that as a young nerd. But no, I didn't put any Rankin Bass stories on mine. I'll, I'll let you have the Hobbit. The Hobbit is a classic. Okay, I think it's great. I agree, it is better than. Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies, if nothing else. Like, yeah, well, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot that's better than Peter Jackson's Hobbit um, movies. For my first film, I'm actually going to go with uh, the mm. earliest film on my list. And a lot of people seem to think that the fantasy genre in movies started around the time Star Wars started. And that's not true at all. And there's mm. a lot... 
Not a lot, but there's a fair number of fantasy well, films. Because going, the, the conversation about fantasy films is driven by guys guys our age. It's true. So you know, guys but, who grew up with Star Wars and didn't look back. That but often. it's also, but, I do yeah. think it's also fair to say, and we've we've seen our fair share of fantasy films from you know prior to that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, that before Star Wars helped reinvent visual effects and even reinvent a lot of technical craft that went into fantasy films. Uh, there were a lot of fantasy films that maybe had good ideas, but were wanting. Mm. Uh, there were fantasy films that maybe had pretty good visual effects, but the story was stupid. Mm. There were a lot of fantasy films where the story was awesome, but the visual effects couldn't back it up. Mm-hmm. And then there was a film that completely, perfectly married the two and holds up really, really great today. And I think you'll agree with me. It is the 1935 version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's an that, amazing movie. So that's a Shakespeare play, but mm-hmm. it is a fantasy. Shakespeare wrote a couple of fantasies. Uh, the Tempest is also a fantasy. Uh, but A Midsummer Night's Dream is a story of a pair of young lovers uh, who everyone's in love with the wrong person and they wander into the woods. They're fleeing into the night. Everyone's running after each other, trying mm-hmm. to elope or have sex with each other. And they run afoul of... A bunch of forest spirits who have way too much time on their hands and decide to just fuck around and give everyone well, love they're potions. Fi- fighting over who who gets to look after like a foundling. Yeah, it's this it's this weird so. subplot where they're doing their own weird, uh, kind of inscrutable forest magical creature things. Mm-hmm. And just human beings are nothing to them, so they're just like their playthings. Mm-hmm. Um this 1935 version, A, it's a great adaptation of the play. Just everyone's on fire. The cast is great. Uh, Mickey Rooney plays Puck, and Mickey mm. Rooney is a goddamn demon from hell in this movie. <laughs> he's so fucking angry and weird and spiteful, and he's perfect. Like, he's just, it's his best performance ever, if you ask me. Like, he mm. just nails it. Um, but what's especially incredible about this movie is that this movie is full of astounding visual effects. Yeah. Especially for the era, when you'd say, like, how did they do that? How did that, like, smoke become a person with the effects they had available to them at the time? Mm-hmm. And it plays really, really great. And it's told with this sense of painterly majesty mm-hmm. that I think is something that we've lost a lot of in our modern science fiction fantasy storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, the sense of presentation and grandeur. Um, and that's like yeah, it, yeah. It, it frustrates me when I'm watching something like Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker, and they're doing this thing like ten thousand giant battle cruisers are emerging from a planet. I'm like, can we get a good look at that? That should be an awe-inspiring image, yeah, and I was, just I never get a sense of it. Uh, I, I use the phrase the unbinding of special effects. There yeah. was a you know I think around the time of Avatar when CGI just really kind of went over a big hump and became sort of reasonably realistic for the first time, just mm. on a large scale, where you could create an entire world. It, it was around that At least time, in CGI. Like, like, I feel like Lord of the Rings yeah. was, like, combining different visuals. There were models and stuff like that, but, yeah. Perhaps, but um, I feel like since since Avatar, maybe once or twice have I been truly dazzled by great special, special effects. What, can you think of what uh, they are? Life of Pi. Uh, yeah, I was dazzled by those visuals. Um, I was really, really impressed by Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Not mm-hmm. Rise, I thought they were still a little clunky. By Dawn, they had really nailed it. Those, yeah. Some of those apes were just... You, you they never lo- they know. They looked real. If you yeah. told someone those were real apes, like, if you showed that movie to someone 50 years ago, mm-hmm. they wouldn't know those weren't real apes. They just yeah, wonder yeah, how yeah. you got to, how you trained exactly. those apes. Um, yeah. 
some of the design in Valerian was really great. Just oh, big vol- like the the, 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 big, rem- the big market sequence. Oh and, my god, and the and the uh, ch- where he's charging through the walls sequence. Oh yeah, so many so many things to look at. It's I really, remember really when uh, you left the theater. I, yeah. I remember there are two distinct memories I have of you leaving a theater. <laughs> One is when you saw Transformers: Age of Extinction, mm. and you just solemnly walked out of the theater, didn't stop to say hi or to anybody, and just walked into a fountain. I, I, yeah, I walked up to a fountain, put my hands in. It's no, like, you walked to, in like I'm, it was like you were you were. Just, I, I didn't step into the fountain, but I, I did put my my hands in water to you sort of to, like reconnect with the natural world. You had to feel something yeah. real. Uh, but the other time I remember is when we emerged from Valerian, and you were just like, my eyeballs are orgasming, <laughs> and you screamed this on an escalator at Universal CityWalk, yeah. which was a funny moment. It was a good movie. I sympathize. <laughs> it's a gorgeous motion picture. But apart from like a few instances, it's like you know I'm watching something like you know like an Avengers movie where there's thousands of characters and they're all firing blasts out of their fists and beating up other aliens and everybody's in motion capture and it's all very impressive. But I'm not going, wow, how did they do that? Or that looks great. It's more like the the only moments they really sort of focused on were the like the quote cool moments like where they all get to pose like mm. I'm gonna spin my weapon and put it away and my hammer lands in my hand and, and the, the raccoon lands next to me and cocks a gun and they all look yeah. really cool and it's like oh, the Marvel way is boring, basically but yeah. it's interesting how the Marvel way I mean like there's something to be said for taking the fantastic and making it every day like mm. Ghostbusters does that the great comedic effect for yeah. example but that's the point of the comedy. Yeah. It's a juxtaposition. Yeah, exactly. But, like, there's something about the way Marvel handles itself. Or every once in a while there'll be a moment of grandeur. But the mm. majority of the aesthetic in the MCU movies mm. is about making everything seem kind of humdrum. Mm. And I kind of like that to an extent because it feels like that's like, you know, oh, I could walk outside like, and like see the, Spider-Man. But when, but I, when those, the Sam- those characters aren't in awe at all. No, They're no. Like, sort of... I, I, on the job, that's, essentially. That's something yeah. I liked about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies was, mm. like, when Spider-Man was web-swinging, mm. Sam Raimi knew that that was spectacular. <laughs> and if you were in New York and you looked up at it, mm. you'd be like, wow. Wow, look, it's Spider-Man. Yeah, there yeah. was moments like that where the people got to say stuff like, like that. There's some corny stuff in that movie. Like, there's a bit where... Uh, I love how every corny minute of that movie. But, like, in Spider-Man 2 in particular, there's a bit where someone says, a web. Go, Spidey, go! And you see them, and I'm like, you laugh, but if you saw Spider-Man, like, mm. save someone in a web who was falling and then swing away, mm. you'd totally scream that yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. That'd be awesome. My favorite is in the opening sequence where Peter Parker's trying to deliver pizzas. Okay. And he drives into <laughs> so an alleyway good. so he can change into the Spider-Man outfit real fast. <laughs> And then he swings out with the pizzas, and there's a, a standard uh, bystander who's like sees Spider-Man swing away with a stack of pizzas, and he just says, "Hey, Spider-Man stole that guy's pizzas." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. Sam Raimi understood that Spider-Man was always the underdog. I miss yeah. that element. I really do. <laughs> All right, what's your next pick? If you, by the way, if you want to hear us talk more about Midsummer Night's Dream uh, on our Patreon, mm. uh, only the best. We review movies that were nominated for Best Picture, every single one ever. Mm. And a couple episodes ago, that one was nominated in 1935, mm. and we talked about it mm. at length. It's a spectacular adaptation. Well, it's great. Uh, th- this isn't the oldest film on my list, but it mm. nearly is. Mm. And uh, it's uh, the Powell Pressburger film, The Thief of Baghdad, from 1940. Oh, good pick. Um, um, they didn't make mine, but that's a good pick. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's one of those films. It was made in 1940, but its special effects are on a level where you're kind of still today unsure how they did some of that stuff. Yeah, it is just so amazing to look at. Uh, I mean, the plot. It's it's um, 
It's an Arabian Nights riff, more or less. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's not really all that accurate to you know, no. the, the original literature. But... Like, you'll recognize elements. If you know the movie Aladdin, mm. you'll recognize elements, but also some of it happens completely differently. Yeah, well, the movie Aladdin owes so much to, to oh. Thief of Baghdad. I'd, I'd say about um, 80% yeah, there's, of it. There's, like, you know? kidnapped princesses and young heroes and genies and all, all the usual fantastic All the genie elements, stuff yeah. is really cool in this movie. Because the, the genie is a giant. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. 50 feet tall. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Um... And I say that in the true sense yeah. of the word. It's awe-inspiring. But yeah, it's 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 the Latin story, more or less. And um, I think it's... It, it, you watch it today, and it feels... It feels like you're finally witnessing where all of this stuff came from. It is, like, the, the, the source of all of, like, the sort of cliched, quote, Arabian imagery that you've seen throughout fantasy literature and entertainment in America. Especially movies. Yeah, especially movies. Every every like, movie, every American um, movie that takes place, and everything from Prince of Persia to mm-hmm. Aladdin to everything, like, they're all, they're all just stealing from this. They're all just stealing directly. Yeah, like, yeah, like, they know quote, it. Quote, like, scenes and shots are still, like, just to because, this day, taken from the FIFA bag. Just because mainstream audiences yeah. might not be as aware of it because it's an older film and it's fallen into relative obscurity, like, it's not, like, it's talked about as Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Like, the people who make movies, they know. Yeah. They've yeah. watched it. <laughs> They've studied it. What, what I appreciate, and even though, you know, it's it's not, it's made by a bunch of white people, and, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's not the most culturally sensitive film. No. I feel like, uh, at least at the time, uh, in 1940, when they're making films like this, there was a good deal of respect for the source material as a work of literature. Mm. They understood that this is kind of an important book, and even though they're not necessarily getting like the details right, they were trying to capture the bigness and the importance of it. And I mm. feel like Thief of Baghdad really understood that uh, you know, the, sh- the tales of Shahrazad were... Uh, at least important on some level. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting. I haven't actually watched this one in a while, mm. so I can't speak in too much detail about it, nor do I, I, I care to. But I always remember just the takeaway, the sense of awe and wonder mm. that comes from watching this particular version of it. I yeah. think um, it's 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 a really astounding achievement. I'm mm-hmm. glad you put it on there. Um. Okay, so, so I'm talking about Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm talking Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay, I want to. So we're, we're talking older films. Yeah, like, wanna, let's, late, late 30s, let's, early 40s. Let's stay in the older in the uh, older uh, uh, section here, and let's talk about. Uh, you know, I uh, just looked it up. Thief of Baghdad is on Tubi. Oh, good, free, great. So you should yeah. check that one out. Um, it might be on the Criterion channel as well. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. There's a really nice Criterion edition of it, so that yeah. would make a lot of sense. Uh, speaking of Criterion editions, and speaking of movies that directly inspired Disney. <laughs> Let's talk about La Bella La Bette. Uh, that's on my list, too. Yeah. yeah. John Cocteau's absolutely gorgeous, haunting, and kind of frightening. And, and downright surreal. Yeah. Version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, if you've seen the Disney version, uh, they ripped this thing off so bad. Including, like, the weird details that aren't in the original story. Like, you ever notice, like, oh, wow, everything in the, in the uh, castle is alive? Yeah, in the Cocteau version, there are human arms mm-hmm. hanging out that of the walls. Candelabra. Yeah, and, and they're stuff, just yeah. yeah, it's creepy. I think it was probably also a big influence on Return to Oz, like the Hall of Severed <laughs> Heads. Like I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if that was a, if that was a direct influence on that as well. Um, you know the story. A guy runs afoul of a beast. The beast is like, "I'll kill you unless you give me your daughter." And the guy's like, "I'm an asshole, so okay." And he gives him his daughter, and she's all nice and stuff, and then they fall in love. Um, 
But in in Cocteau's version, they fall in love, but it's not this sort of saccharine romance. It's not. It's not a, because listen, he's a monster. Yeah, the Disney version. Played by, he's played by Jean Marais. Uh, it, Jean Marais. And, yeah, um, and the Disney version, like there's there's fun songs, mm-hmm. there's wacky comedy, there's playful banter, there's action, there's adventure. It's an entertainment experience, and I like that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. The Cocteau version seems to understand that there's something inherently fucked up about all of this. Mm-hmm. So every time someone like makes fun of the Disney version and was like, oh, it's a romantic movie about Stockholm Syndrome. The Cocteau version knows that a little bit better. The yeah. Cocteau version understands that the the fairy tales of yore weren't taking place in some kind of shared universe. They were taking place <laughs> in a surreal corner of reality mm. where, you know, the, the idea rules was... don't apply over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. magic is fucked up. Is the and, idea, and, well, and I think also, there's something about that. Well, it also understood that you know we, thanks to Disney, we think of fairy tales as sort of light, light fare for children that mm-hmm. has you know reinforce a lot of norms. Uh, if you go back to sort of the way fairy tales used to be told, you know the parents are out working, uh, the grandmother is looking after the children, and the breeding couple. Are usually punished. Well, uh, you, you know I what I'm talking it, about, though. I love it when you call them that. Though. Like what happens in Rapunzel? She loses her hair. He goes blind, and the witch wins. Yeah. Who's telling that story? Grandma's telling that story because <laughs> Grandma's at home with the kids. Yeah. If a boy comes to you and tries to take you away from this household, you're doomed. Yeah. 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 Just stay the stay the fuck home. Mm-hmm. Take care of Grandma. So the, these tales were told out of. I know you spite feel like you're cooped up and trapped. And, Don't yeah, go anywhere. Take care of Grandma. They're kind of they're they're, they're told out of spite and vindictiveness. Mm-hmm. They're told to frighten children into you know staying in line in a lot of cases. Uh, they don't have some sort of halcyon romance to them. That's not yeah. the point of a lot of these stories. Jean Cocteau, uh, an artist who worked in surrealism, mm-hmm. if, you, if you haven't seen his films, uh, The Blood of the Poet, Orpheus, and Testament of Orpheus, check out all of those movies. Astounding. Um, I mean, between those three and this one, he's yeah. just one of, one of the great directors. But uh, he understood that there was a lot of these twisted elements, but rather than sort of play into the cliched imagery, he's using his own surrealistic bent to make it seem like a nightmare. Now, to be to be clear here, I just want to make it this is not a horror movie. This is it just a movie feels with, like a horror movie. It has horrific elements because mm. the beast and his castle should be scary. They should mm-hmm. be intimidating. It's not supposed to be, wee, there's fun clocks. Like, <laughs> no, it should be like, it should seem like, dance. it's yeah. a bad situation that she makes the most of. And when she discovers the beast's humanity underneath all of that off-putting, horrifying imagery, it's more of a discovery. It's more of a journey. Mm. Um, they do end up together. There is a happy ending. Um, but and there are elements, kind, kind, kind of. of, kind of. It's it's relatively happy, yeah. but like not not compared to the Disney version, obviously. But mm. you know, it's not just all death and misery. But um, yeah, it's the kind of fantasy, and I love this movie in particular because once Disney came in and really codified how fairy tales would feel to Western mm. culture for generations, yeah, start starting with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and yeah, some, which had already come out when I think La Belle and the Bec came out was out. I think Snow White, oh, yeah, Snow White was a few years before that. Well, uh, Beauty and the Beast was uh, 
46. Yeah, so Disney had already uh, had a few out uh, there. For Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was like 37. Yeah. So yeah, it's so been di- almost a decade. But Disney didn't make a cottage industry out of fairy tales until like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and a few others. So Disney defined our view of fairy tales in the mm-hmm. modern era. And John Cocteau was not only not beholden to that, he didn't have to comment on that. He mm-hmm. was free. To yeah, do yeah. his version without anyone thinking of a comparison. And there's something really wonderful about that, and we don't get that now. If anyone did Beauty and the Beast now, people would compare it to the Disney version. And they which might they, feel necessary. Which they remade, by the way. It's like yeah. the only it's like it's like the only version left. Or if they yeah. did it, it would be like they'd have to very deliberately defy that image yeah like that if, so they'd have to like deliberately go in the opposite like Blumhouse's Beauty and the Beast yes Disney has like, inserted the Beast and Beauty and just yeah Disney has inserted itself into that conversation so mm. heavily and that's true for Cinderella as well that's mm. true for a lot of the other stuff that Disney has that like Jungle Book well, people we're, try we're, to do their own we're Jungle just Book talking about Aladdin so, yeah. yeah so like yeah so you have to comment on it or you have to defy it mm. and Cocteau is free of that it's this beautiful like Fabergé egg of a movie, yeah, that, like yeah. just whatever you do, don't crack it. Anyway, what's your next pick? Um, why, why, why don't we stay with old fairy tales? Sure. Um, why don't we go to Ugetsu? Um, that is a ghost story, okay, and kind of a fable in a lot of ways. It's by Kenji Mizaguchi, uh, the Japanese master of the Japanese New Wave. You know, I guess early crest of the New Wave. Uh, he did a lot of really wonderful movies. He did Sancho the Bailiff and. You know, just look up Kenji, Kenji Mizuguchi. Please. He's, he's really wonderful. But yeah, this is about uh, a Potter and his strange encounters with a supernatural being. Mm. And it, just like uh, a lot of Western fairy tales, it is more or less about how he eventually needs to come around to a little bit more of a traditional marriage setup. I think the wife ends up being the main character in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's about a Potter who... Uh, wants to make a lot of pottery because, you know, he has sort of this boon in his business while there's a war breaking out and he's able to sort of take his pots into town and he has to put his family at great risk to finish these pots and he ends up finding a buyer in this mysterious woman and she walks on screen. She's got a veil over her face. Even though she's in this crowded square, Mm -hmm. she's dressed in white. She has sort of a glow about her. You know immediately she's a ghost. Yeah. Like, right away. And when she says, like, come to my haunted mansion out in the middle of nowhere. And it's worth and bring noting... bring me your pots. It's like, what the hell is going on here? It's worth noting, the movie mm. has been on for a long time before this fantasy element comes in. Mm. And I actually really like that. I think that can work really, really well. Because, again, a lot of fantasy stories are stories of real-life people mm. who suddenly encounter the supernatural. And if they encounter the supernatural right at the beginning of the film, the supernatural becomes just kind of part of the fabric of reality. Yeah. If they encounter it a little later, all of a sudden it just feels a little bit more surreal and creepy to me. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, if, you, yeah. if you encountered a vampire now, when you're in your 30s, mm. that's weird. If you grew up knowing <laughs> vampires were everywhere, like, like, yeah, it just, like, like, like in True does, Blood or yeah. something, like, that's different. But, like, yeah, if all of a sudden, for the first time, you encounter a vampire in your 30s after you, found, after you thought they were fake this whole time, all of a sudden, it's really fucking weird, and it's just a different vibe altogether. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's... I, I'm not too familiar with the source material on this one. Nor I. But uh, I, I do know that this is a very powerful feature film, and I think it does a good deal to capture a lot of the fable-like elements of 
that fairy tale romance while also highlighting how these tales of men who go through these sort of fantasy odyssey like scenarios are actually just sort of following their most loutish instincts. Mm. The main character of Ugetsu is kind of a jerk. Yeah. He ignores his family, he ignores his wife, he puts a lot of people in danger unduly, and when he meets his fate, he ends up leaving a lot of people high and dry. And I'm not, I would rather you watch the film just to sort of discover how it opens up in front of you. Yeah, I, uh, I love fantasy stories in which uh, people are playthings of fantasy. Yeah. Something about that I buy more. Like, if it was the idea of, like, you are the... Like fa- a Macbeth sort of yeah, thing. Like yeah, like, the idea is, like, you know, if you're the chosen one and you're here to lead the elves in a war against the ogres, mm. then it's just like, okay, so everything that does revolve around me, you just in- open up a whole world of magic and wonder and I'm the most important thing. <laughs> Something about me rejects that. But if we're just playthings to mm. the gods, all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes... <laughs> that tracks... Yeah. I'm enough. I'm enough of a downer mm. <laughs> that, I, that I buy that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm talking about. So yeah, it has this fantasy element. It's also about neglect of the family. There's a good criticism of war. Uh, this film came out in the mid '50s, uh, along with a lot of the films of Kurosawa that were just making it stateside at around the same time. It popularized Japanese cinema in America and yeah. in Europe as well. And uh, if you haven't seen these films, you should sort of experience that cinema was actually kind of way far way further ahead in a lot of ways in terms of storytelling and in terms of just intensity of emotions and flexibility of this kind of t- tale mm-hmm. I feel like Americans weren't making movies like this especially in the 1950s I feel like Ugetsu uh, is the kind of movie that people would celebrate today specifically if it came out from A24 yeah, all of a sudden everybody like oh it's fantastic but if like Columbia came out you know put it out they'd be like what the fuck is this <laughs> expectations would be a little different. That's my yeah. point. It's like that, that's the deal. It's like all of a sudden, I feel like A twenty four has given like a brand mm. to this kind of art house cinema. It says like it's okay to think art house cinema is cool. Yeah, Ugetsu yeah. and and its ilk were cool decades ago. Mm. There's so many cool films that if you like the kind of stuff that A twenty four puts out, they just found mm. a way to brand that. Yeah. Like that's just art house but cinema. We, but yeah, we, we were talking. I'm talking about Ugetsu, and we mm. were just talking about La Belle et La Bette, and I feel like. International cinema, mm. like in, in Japan and in Europe, uh, were much better about handling what fantasy was about, other than just sort of, we, it's fun, escape. <laughs> uh, it, you know, that, that's what Disney was putting into the conversation. Let's make Pinocchio. Oh, it's, look. Okay, Pinocchio is okay. a nightmare. Pinocchio okay. is a bad example. Pinocchio is fucking terrifying. You're yeah. right. Uh, but- <laughs> Pinocchio scares the shit out of me to this day. <laughs> But yeah, you look at something like Cinderella. Yeah, Cinderella's very tame. Cinderella, it, it's tame. You watch right. it today, it's almost bland. Uh, yeah, like the, the, par- the, 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 the abuse at home is pretty dark, but everything else is so light. Yeah. The movie flows... Well, Cinderella, Cinderella herself is such a wet shirt of a I, character. I, Cinderella, for me, is strikes me as the template for the first Harry Potter movie. Mm. Where, yeah, he lives the, under the staircase, he's abused by his family. Are, are yeah. Granted. Yeah, like, yeah, basically everyone is his fairy godmother. Everyone is just giving him gifts, like, throughout the movie. Like, he's every li- other scene. Literally he gets a cool willed thing. a fortune of gold right at the beginning yeah. of the first movie. But the idea is that he was so miserable for so long beforehand mm. that that's a relief. Mm. Um,. So, anyway, uh, which makes it interesting that my next pick is actually a Disney movie. And right. Disney, again, codified the fantasy genre for a lot of people. Uh, and I think it would be foolish to deny that a lot of their fantasy films are very, very good. 
Mm. Some of them are even great. In fact, one of my favorite animated films of all time is Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty is pretty awesome. Sleeping Beauty fucking rocks. Well, Sleeping Beauty is great uh, if you are at peace with the fact Mm. that the breeding couple are dullest toast. Yes, they are. Sleeping Beauty and Prince Philip are boring as shit. They're not the, they're not the protagonists. They're not the main characters. They're not. In fact, they have I, like one scene of consequence. I would say that the three fairy godmothers, mm-hmm. uh, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether, yep. uh, let me look up the actresses who played them. Oh, please they're do. they're really wonderful. That'd be great. Because um, I can't uh, remember it all. They are the ones who are really sort of, they're moving the story forward. Mm-hmm. They have the most character. Yep. They have really interesting relationships. There's some queer underpinnings there are. <laughs> between those characters. Yeah. And uh, and it's their rivalry with the evil demoness, Maleficent, that is the cause of all the drama in the story. Well, Maleficent was pissed that she wasn't invited to the thing, but beyond that. She, she's, and, and she curses the, the main character, the title character, mm. out of spite. Pure spite! <laughs> I love Maleficent for that. Um, mm. There's so many things that are really wonderful about Sleeping Beauty, not the least of which is that, yeah, this is a f- Disney film from the 1950s. Yeah, 59 it came out. In which all of the most interesting characters are badass women. <laughs> Florifana and Meriwether are badasses. They take it upon well, I themselves. I would call them to, badasses, I would, but they're I would. antagonists. No, I would. I would call them badasses in the mm. same way that, like, uh, Murder, She Wrote is about right. a badass. Where she's just, um, like, she's got this sort of amiable quality. But when push comes to shove, mm. they will fucking fly a sword into a dragon's <laughs> throat. Um, they're played by uh, Verna Felton, Barbara Jo Allen, and Barbara Luddy. Those are the actresses. Who they deserve the three, more credit. Yeah, the three, the three fairies. One of the things that was most offended by with Maleficent, the movie. Oh, okay. Uh, a movie that does not work. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things I like in it, like Angelina Jolie is good, but mm-hmm. uh, is in order to make Maleficent the protagonist, they decided to make Flora Fauna and Meriwether idiots. Yeah, that pissed me uh, off. If you're fond of those characters, that seems like a disservice. They were great, yeah. heroic, awesome yeah. characters who deserve to be celebrated and appreciated. Yeah. But on top of that, it is a masterpiece of style. It doesn't look like any other Disney film. It is giant widescreen, but with a lot really of vertic- bold, painterly 1950s style. A lot of verticality to it, too, which is very unique and distinctive. Um if you can, oh. it's not even that much of a musical. There aren't that many songs in it. It's not like no. It's there's there's the there's uh, a drinking not, not song. So this is love. There's the the um, where they're dancing in the woods. Uh, but that's that, that but that's number. more. Yeah. But that's still not like a proper. There's like two musical numbers yeah. to speak of. Is my point mm. in a Disney movie when you're used to there being a half dozen. Mm. Uh, it's excitingly filmed. It's legitimately a little scary. Maleficent mm. is creepy and the dragon is scary for little kids. I love the design of her cool uh, uh, her villain lair. Yeah, her villain lair. Yeah. It's surrounded by giant thickets and it's mm. so cool. <laughs> like, it plays really, really great. It's got a lot of characters who are totally ahead of their time. Where, if you know, if any other like Disney movie today had as many awesome female like protagonists, mm. people would be talking about, oh, why is every movie like this now? And I'm like, Sleeping Beauty, motherfucker. <laughs> Sleeping motherfucking um, beauty. We've been doing it for a long time. Catch the hmm. fuck up. Uh, Disney did this a lot. They actually hired uh, separate actresses to do sort of the the 
rotoscope. physical physical performances, and they would rotoscope yeah. them in. That was uh, famously done with uh, Snow White, and a, a lot of people who've been paying attention to Disney films noticed that they were actually reusing a lot of the rotoscoping for yeah. other characters and other movies. Like I think so, the uh, movements and the bodies are ac- actually identical. Like at the end of uh, Beauty and the Beast, when they're dancing, they're actually reusing dancing animation from Cinderella. No, wait, Sleeping Beauty, sorry. From Sleeping Beauty. From Sleeping Beauty. The end of Sleeping Beauty, Um, that's the same dancing animation as the end of Sleeping Beauty. However, Maleficent is played by an actress named Eleanor Audley, and she actually was, like, they used her body as well. Eleanor Audley, who also played the Wicked Stepmother in Cinderella. Fucking awesome. And, uh, oh gosh, she has has some other, like, really Mm. notable... That's right, she played Madame Leota in The Haunted Mansion. There you go. Great voice. Mm. What an amazing woman. Anyway, Sleeping Beauty. Absolute classic. Only Disney film. At least a Disney animated film. I think it's the only Disney film total uh, that made my list. What what you got next? Well, I mean, who knows how many of these Disney owns at this point. (laughs) Well, that's a good Uh, point. Um, let's see. Do I have any other? Like, oh, I guess. Why don't we skew toward um the sword and sandal epics? Uh, I was just about to that myself. Yeah, let's let's go to Jason and the Argonauts. That was my next pick. Okay, good. Literally my next one. Uh, yeah, Jason and the Argonauts. Maybe the best of sort of the high budget special effects driven peplum films that came out of. Is it an American production? Um, this one I think is an American production. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Jason and the Argonauts tells the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece uh, that you know from uh, ancient lore. Uh, it came out in the mid, in the early '60s, and uh, rather famously, it was uh, one of the one of Ray Harryhausen's triumphs. Uh, yeah. Ray Harryhausen was a special effects animator mm-hmm. who uh, was uh, and also a creature creator mm-hmm. who made a lot of really wonderful, indelible stop motion animated monsters. For a lot of these wonderful films, yeah, he trained uh, under Willis O'Brien, who, who worked uh, on uh, King, uh, Kong. King Kong. Yeah. yeah, very famous worked on King Kong, and then Ray Harryhausen kept the tradition alive. And a lot of the most wonderful stop motion monsters you've ever seen, but especially you know from mm. you know Beast, Twenty Thousand Fathoms, yeah. and uh, and of course Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans. These are yeah, Ray the, Harryhausen the, creations. The, the being from Jason and the Argonauts is the, the the Colossus, like the big gigantic statue that comes alive. That's oh, really I would cool. I would argue it's the skeleton. Well, the skeleton. The skeleton. The, the big climax of the movie is fighting off a small army of stop motion skeletons. And when you watch. And, and they're on screen with oh yeah. Jason. Oh yeah. So yeah, they're fighting, fighting with them. They're yeah. clanging their swords together. There's little bits of business, which I, I just rewatched this today just because I wanted a fresh. <laughs> okay. But like, there's little bits of business that, like, when you think about what a monumental technological challenge mm-hmm. it was to not only animate those skeletons, but have them in the same frame. Yeah, as these people before any computer like processes were available, you had to physically you know work with the frame. Um, the idea that they would go out of their way to add little bits of business, like skeletons are fighting a guy, guy dies, skeletons move on to the next guy, and they hop over his body. No, One of them like does yeah. a little hop. Like that's ju- that's an unnecessary a, a detail. detail. Probably took him two days to do that. There was it's a- great. If you've seen Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, he's clearly trying to pay homage to a lot of the. The Ray oh. Harryhausen stuff, in, in specifically in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and there's a really great bit in Army of Darkness where a, skele- a stop-motion skeleton crawls over a wall and, and Bruce Campbell kicks its head off. Yeah. The skull goes flying. And uh, and he turns around and starts fighting another skeleton. But if you look at the skeleton he just injured, its headless body just sort of, like, looks left and right for a moment before climbing <laughs> back down. It's like, like, where's my head? Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so uh, Jason the Argonauts, it's actually, in, in many respects, it feels very modern in that it's basically just an excuse for one amazing action sequence after another. Mm-hmm. Like, one, every other yeah, sequence in this movie is a huge visual effects 
spectacular on yeah, some level. Whether it's Jason as like a little tiny like action figure talking to a room full of gods, that's a dialogue scene. They did not have to go that hard, but they did it for us. Thank you for that. Uh, for me, the scene that isn't even stop motion, but it just. I wish I could see this movie on a big screen. I've never seen it on a big screen. Yeah. Uh, it's when they have to go through the clashing rocks. They have to take their ship oh, through these yeah, two yeah, cliffs. Yeah. And the cliffs are basically destroying every ship that wanders through them. Through rock slides and actually the cliffs like shoving together. And the only way they can they can make it through is if Poseidon himself emerges from the sea. Poseidon is 100 feet tall. Mm. And he's just this giant colossal human being with a fish tail <laughs> and they do all this wonderful things where they film him in slow motion so it feels like every movement he makes is like takes longer because he's huge and they always keep something normal size in the foreground so you get this constant sense of scale mm-hmm. again they understood the need that all of these fantasy elements should be breathtaking yeah. they should not be humdrum they should astonish Downed us, and, and the framing in Jason the Argonauts alone mm. should be studied by every filmmaker <laughs> who works in sci-fi or fantasy. Yeah, um, it's perfect. We're talking about the technicals, I think, because a lot of the acting is leaves a lot fine. to be desired. It's uh, fine. It's not remarkable. Uh, anyway. a, a really versatile uh, supporting actor named Nigel Green plays Hercules in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hercules is a supporting character who like disappears halfway through the movie, mm-hmm. just like but Hercules cannot join in the rest of the journey. He has other shit to do. But he's, okay. Ni- he's Nigel Green from like the Matt Helm movies and. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story I, I talked about how Thief of Baghdad, even though it doesn't get it like anything really right, at least sort of has a sense of reverence for the source material it's touching. Yeah, I feel like there is not a whit of reverence at all in something like Jason of the Argonauts. It's really kind of brash, mm-hmm. and I it's think just fodder for action. Exactly, cool stuff. Yeah. and and it, uh, but the action cool stuff is so dazzling that you kind of don't care, and you, you're uh, willing to forgive that the story is kind of cardboardy and the characters are a little bit cardboardy but in a way I think that serves this, the material in this weird theatrical sort of way where people are a little bit more uh, declarative. It's much more of a demonstrative type of mythology and you know what? It's mythology. Yeah. It should feel mythic. It and should that's, feel like yeah. archetypal. Yeah, it doesn't have to have a lot of nuance sometimes. It's, it's like, okay no, for it just to feel big and I, huge. I went to see a movie in 2011. It's called Thor, and it's about Thor, the god of thunder. And it's about this ugly CG universe and superhero mechanics about using beams to beam he to earth. spends half like, the movie in a small town in yeah, New Mexico. Shouldn't and, this be about people standing on blocks and saying, I am the greatest of okay. all kinds? For a little bit it is. Is that when it's just on when it's just it, it, it in Asgard? Seems I, way too impatient. I love the production design in that Thor. At least oh, of Asgard. I oh, I love it. it. It's, it's great. So it, ugly. I, I actually it's I met a guy. CGI. It's so gross looking. I, I met a guy uh, before that movie came out um, um, who was working in uh, the production design department, and mm. I just he was a friend of a friend. Like that's it. And um, I was like, "Oh, you're working on Thor?" And I was just like, "What's Asgard gonna look like?" Because mm. this was at a time when Marvel was still kind of untested. Yeah. And so I didn't have like necessarily a lot of faith in it. I'm just I'm hoping for the best. And uh, and he was just like Kenneth Branagh had one movie he made us all watch. Mm. And I'm like, what was it? David Lynch's Dune. And mm. I'm like, oh, oh that's no. awesome. Okay. No, that's awesome. Sorry. I love the I love the production design in Dune. I it should feel alien and weird. And Dune, huge. But yeah. No, I love it. But, I love that. But it doesn't look like Dune. It, it looks, it, it it looks well, like it's people an, are it's, made of plastic in that. It's a sense of scale, sense of weirdness. Oh, shut up! I disagree with you on that movie, but that's fine. 
Um, all right. Well, for my next pick, I'm actually going to jump around a little bit and skip over a film, but because um, we've been going kind of in chronological order, all right. uh, I'm going to go to a movie which is not just, I think, a great fantasy film, but it's a great film about the power of fantasy storytelling, hmm. and it is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. <laughs> that that was that almost made it onto my list. There's a, there was a couple of Terry yeah. Gilliam films. I you know Terry Gilliam is an asshole, but he he's made some good films and. Well, I mean, you can tell he's an asshole by watching his oh, films. Oh, the, I, I almost the put that, I almost put Time Bandits on my list. Yeah. Time Bandits is one of the most mean spirited movie endings. <laughs> like the it's like just, the, it's, I, I, I don't want to give away what happens, but it's yeah, it's really cruel. grim. Like it seems like everything's awesome and everything ended great, and then like in the last thirty seconds, he just pulls the blanket out from under you and mm. does something really shitty. And I love it. And Time Bandits almost made my list, but I ultimately decided that the Adventures of Baron Munchausen is closer to my heart. Okay. Uh, the the idea of the Adventures of Baron Munchausen is they are putting on a very elaborate play of the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Mm. Uh, Baron Munchausen is a German uh, fantasy hero uh, who has gets into a wild series of adventures where he meets Greek gods mm. and gets swallowed by a giant monster at sea and travels to the moon and. They're showing this play, and then all of a sudden, a really old man who looks a lot like the protagonist walks up onto the theater and says, No, no, no! This isn't how it happened. This isn't how it happened at all! I'll tell you how it happened. And then he tells everybody how it happened, and then in the middle of his story, uh, like an invading army like blows up the theater... And all of a sudden, he has to go to all the places he went to in all of his classic adventures. Mm. And everything's kind of fucked up. <laughs> like, because well, he, he left he's, them. He's old now. And there's a really uh, exhilarating... I remember watching this when I was maybe... Yeah. When it first came out. So I was like maybe 13 or so. And, uh, and I watched it, and I was really sort of upset that everything was so fucked up. Yeah. Because it tantalized me. There's a flashback scene early on when Barry mm. Munchausen is telling his story. And he has this sort of, essentially a retinue of superheroes that yeah. his beck and call. Eric Idle plays a guy who can run like the Flash. And he mm-hmm. can run off to another country and bring the, back a bottle of wine. There's another the guy dare. who's super strong. There's another yeah, guy who has superhuman hearing and can blow like a tornado yeah, and, out of and his and mouth. And, and there's this really fun adventure sequence where... Uh, and one, yeah, one's like a sharpshooter. Uh, they send uh, this one guy of like far away to catch a ball of wine. He falls asleep on the way back, and it starts a war. And there's this big adventure sequence where everybody's invading, and they use their superpowers to scare them off. I wanted the whole movie to be like that. Yeah. And then it cuts back to reality, and everything's muddy and chaotic and gross, and people have like lost their senses. And Baron Munchausen is literally being pursued by death. Mm-hmm. Who oh yeah, death in several itself. sequences. Like this yeah. terrifying puppet of death that's mm-hmm. just super. I almost forgot about that for a second. He's like trying to pull Baron Munchausen's soul out of his body it's horrifying mm. but and that's something that i agree i think a part of me wanted that well, more as a kid but as an adult i like it this way well as as an adult i realize that it's a because it's a it's more about mortality yeah. we realize that the fantasy fun is 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 a temporary thing mm-hmm. the fantasy hero even in fantasy these heroes don't get to live forever and they got to have to start facing the consequences of their actions and deal with mortality and guilt and their inability to get stuff done. Yeah. And, also, and, that's, and, also, and that's a much more interesting take, especially yeah. when it came out in like the late 80s when mm-hmm. that sort of thing wasn't being talked about. It was kind of a dour take mm-hmm. on the fantasy genre, which was still kind of unironic in a lot of the films that were being made. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But on top of that, it also talks about how fantasy has the power to revitalize us when we are gloomy, when things are shitty. The ability Mm -hmm. to believe in something fantastical makes us young again, as indeed it literally does. When John Neville is playing old Baron Munchausen, Mm -hmm. very frail, walking with a cane, but the more he believes in his own ability to do the fantastic, the more he does fantastic things, the younger he gets throughout the film. Uh, it is great. It is mm. distinctly produced. The the moon is an incredible, like, clockwork sequence where Robin Williams plays a severed head who, like, try, mm. he's constantly trying to escape his body because if he escapes his body, he is no longer concerned with the needs of the flesh. And mm. he can only think about high-minded ideas. But when he puts on his... You know, he puts his head back on his body... He's hungry and horny immediately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's... Um, it's surreal it's so great um every every creature looks amazing Mm. every fantasy sequence looks gorgeous i love oliver reed as Hephaestus. oh yeah yeah, yeah. he's hilarious he's so fucking good and And venus is played by a young uh uma Uma, thurman yeah Yeah. who is very beautiful like terry gilliam knows exactly how to film he recreates that picture of venus Venus in the clamshell and like it's like stunning and it's just like oh so so he just painted that. It was, she just posed for him. That was nice of her. Um, it's a film that gets a bad rap. It's a film that was ungodly it's, expensive. It really, tanks like crazy. Well, because they barely released it. They released mm. it. They released it like you would release like a little independent movie, but it was a giant expensive film. It didn't even have an opportunity to make mm. its money back. But when you actually sit down and watch it, you'll find that it's really quite daring and ingenious and wicked and exciting and I love it to pieces. I, I, I admire how depressing it is. Yeah, but I don't find it depressing in the end. Okay. The way it ends, I feel like it's depression is part of that and depression is one of the things that fuels mm. our fantasies. The fact that we live in a world where things are muddy, where governments are corrupt, where war is a constant fear, where famine and pestilence are daily issues, mm. fantasy becomes more important. Okay. Because it gives us something yeah. to strive for. So I like uh, that it has an actual nice message like that. All right. Um, let's see. What else do I want to, what do I want to turn toward here? Um, I have three animated films on my list. Uh, I have a few I, as well. I already talked about The Hobbit. Um, let's go for something a little bit more recent. This is actually a little bit lower on the list. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's been done better in other media. But it's it's really a good modern version of essentially the Hansel and Gretel story, and that is Henry Selick's Coraline uh, from oh, Laika. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, when you introduce oh. Hansel and Gretel, I'm like, are you talking about Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters? What are you doing? No, <laughs> goodness, no. I mean, that, that's, that's a fun movie. That's but... a blast of a flick, but it's a puffball. You know, it's, yeah. you watch it if you want. No, you know, it's, Coraline, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, Coraline, uh, it was done by Henry Selick, directed by Henry Selick, who also did The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, which is come to be regarded as you know an indelible classic of of the genre which it is uh yeah the, the genre of kids horror I no, kid, of animation of movies mm. about holidays mm. of, of i think it's animation in general i think it's a masterpiece. It's just yeah a masterpiece of animation yeah. uh, and henry selick he, he also did uh james and the giant peach which is not as good yeah. i like the design in that but i feel like it doesn't have raul dull's sort of bitterness mm-hmm. intact it's also such a thin story that i have to pad it out with this underwater pirate thing which is yeah. neat looking but doesn't go anywhere it's like and we need songs who do we get to do songs in this really kind of dour miserable movie written by raul 
all dull. I know, Randy Newman. <laughs> he's perfect. <laughs> Forgot he did the music for that. It's just awful. Yeah. Um, good stuff good. in it, though. Like, it's not a bad movie, but it's just not a great Good voice film. cast. It's not a great uh, movie. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss is great as the centipede. Yeah. Uh, but... I feel like he was really firing on all cylinders for Coraline, which is based on a book by Neil Gaiman, which was, uh, one could argue, ripped off wholesale from Clive Barker's The Thief of Always, but, uh, <laughs> which was written first and published first. Well, but, quite, a bit for, quite, quite a bit first. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was not a new book. <laughs> yeah, and it was read, famous. Read The Thief of Always, and you're going to say, hang on a minute, Mr. Neil Gaiman. Uh, but yeah, they, they, Neil Gaiman's story was the more popular one. It sold more copies, so they made that one into a movie. The Thief of Always was trapped in production hell for like 20 years. Oh yeah, everyone tried to make yeah, it. Everybody tried to make it, just never made it off the ground. Coraline did. Yeah. Uh, and it is about a young girl, complete brat, mm-hmm. who moves into a new house that she hates. But she does find that this old kind of edifice on a hill has a secret doorway, and she can climb inside, and there's this big purple umbilical cord that leads through this long corridor. She emerges on the other side, and it's the same house, only everything's a little bit off. Mm. First of all, it's the, she meets her parents. Her parents are there, but they have buttons for eyes. They're also more interesting. The, well, they're, like her parents, she that, sees her parents as kind of boring, but here, like, It's not that they're are... more interesting. It's that they're there to make her feel better mm. get her the meals she wants and say the things she wants to hear and yeah. you put her in the bed that she likes and she uh the the mother character refers to herself as your other mother mm. and it even the, the smallest child who has never read a story before understands that that's a creature that wants to eat Coraline. <laughs> like, right away. Any, anyone, anyone who wants to make everything wants to perfect sucker is your probably yeah. suspect. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 which is the same monster from Thief of Always. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thief of Always, every morning's Christmas morning, every night's Halloween night. You can shape change when you're, when you're, when it's Halloween, you can turn into your costume. And of course, when you turn into your costume, I want to be a demon. I want to be a gargoyle. Yeah, that's good. Good. Jump down on somebody. Scare them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, drink his blood. What? <laughs> <laughs> Drink his blood, just a little. No, no, that's weird. What? <laughs> You're ruining this. <laughs> People always are so awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Coraline is also awesome. It, it has a, a, this weird sort of poetic, fable-like feeling that I think is missing from a lot of children's entertainment these days. Um, you talked about how uh, the, the Marvel films make the characters seem a little bit more like the, the extraordinary is sort of just a drab part of their everyday lives. Or at least it's something that you like, can run into by chance someday yeah, and, exactly. and you would just accept I, it and as I real. I feel like that's something that is leaking into a lot of kids' entertainments. This sort of pragmatic, realistic, down-to-earth view of these fantastical matters mm. and that there are rules that you can memorize and ways you can sort of traverse it yourself. They're looking at Harry Potter the same way you would reading through the instructions booklet of a video game there are certain things you could master any kid could go in here and there's an appeal to that yes and there's certainly but, a place for it. we're not saying that's bad but this sort of technical mastery of something that's supposed to be extraordinary mm-hmm. robs those films of a lot of their wonderment and i feel like something like Coraline, even though it is sort of a cautionary fable and it's kind of scary does have that sense of wonderment of yeah. Coraline wanders into this small room and it's a gigantic tent inside and they put on this big sort of yeah. surrealist circus performance for her while they're reciting Hamlet. You know, yeah. there's this kind of bigness to the ideas in Coraline that is, I think, lacking from a lot of kids' entertainment. I feel like, and I love Coraline to pieces, mm. I actually struggle because I really wanted to put, I couldn't fit one, mm. but I really wanted to put one Leica movie on my list because mm. I think Leica uh, is the stop motion studio that did Coraline, The Box Trolls, yeah, uh, yeah. Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, 
I feel like they understand two things about uh, kids and specifically kids' fantasy entertainment. One mm. is that kids like being scared. Mm. You know, there's an element of uh, children's storytelling in which uh, evil or something monstrous or something overwhelming mm. uh, takes hold of you, but it's okay. You're safe. It's just a movie. You're going to watch it. The heroes will probably prevail. But for a moment, it's going to be scary as fuck. Yeah. But that's okay. You can hug your mom's arm. You can put your hands over your eyes. But in a moment, it'll be fine. Mm. Leica understands how important that is. Leica also understands how important it is. I'm trying to remember who said this. I think it was, was it Werner Herzog who said that like film is starving for new imagery? Like that was that was Herzog. Yeah. He, he said he always – he strove to put new things on film because we don't have new images anymore. Yeah, and that's something that we struggle with. And a lot of the – even the very, very good sci-fi fantasy that we have nowadays – can't find that very yeah. easily. One of the things I liked about the um, uh, the Last Jedi was you can tell that like Ryan Johnson was looking for things. Like, what yeah. if a, an entire planet was covered in white, but every time you touched it, it puffed up red? Yeah, that's yeah. a that's it doesn't make sense. It's not important. Yeah, it right. just looks different, and that's and that is important. I understand he's on this this island out in the middle of nowhere, but what if it was infested by Furbies? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, kind of. yeah. Um, um, but like, but well, again, it's, 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 that's something Coraline that's, um, has. That's something point. Coraline has. Yeah. That's actually one of my big criticisms of uh, of the design in the Lord of the Rings movies. I mm. feel like they're really derivative of a lot of fantasy imagery that was already sort of out there. It was in book covers right. and posters and. First of all, it was just an aesthetic I never found at all attractive, like yeah. the glowing unicorn on the cliff and the waves crashing below and the elf is flying around them and. It just looks so stupid to me, but uh, <laughs> so when you put all of that in a movie, it's like, wow, look at this achievement of design. It's like, yeah, you took the shittiest fantasy design and I, put it all in one movie. I disagree it's, that it's shitty. I do think that they made the choice hmm. to try to make the Lord of I, the Rings feel as classical as possible, almost in a way that you would do like a biblical epic, where like no, you, there are certain fair. imagery, there's certain types of, of monsters like, yeah. and larger than life imagery that you just sort of expect, and we're hmm. just going to do them. I think the idea of Lord of the Rings was to make the most archetypal fantasy film of all time in order to basically, and now we've done this, okay. <laughs> and you can do something else now, but Lord of the Rings is kind of the hmm. classical so fantasy tried story. Tried to be the Ur So we're going so. to do this the way we would do like Ben-Hur. We're not going to reinvent what a chariot looks like just because there's a chariot race in here. We're just going to give you the best chariot race in the history of anything. I feel like that's what they were getting at with a lot of Lord of the Rings. That, that's that's fair. It's just, yeah. uh, first of all, the, the imagery that I'm, I'm talking about is like, it's a little more recent than the Bible. Oh, and, no, uh, I know. I realize that. I, saying, I think they're treating that imagery with that kind of reverence. Yeah, point. yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a, there's a space for that. There's a space for that. I just, I, I, when I, especially when I sort of see that movie after having already seen the Rankin Bass animated film, which actually had a lot of unique imagery, it felt like they were kind of taking, they were taking the path of yeah. path of least resistance, and that right wasn't aesthetically interesting to me. All right. Well, let, uh, let's move on. Mm. Uh, my next pick is uh, another animated film. Uh, it's a film I've actually, I think I talked about very recently on another podcast, but mm. it's a film that is very dear to my heart because not only is it very inventive, but it is very intelligent and it is very mature. Mm. Even in its immaturity, it is Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. <laughs> Wizards is pretty damn good. Film. Wizards yeah. is amazing. Wizards has... It's a, been a long time since I've seen it, actually. I watched yeah. it a few years ago when they re-released it on Blu-ray, and I liked it as a kid. I appreciate it so much on so many more levels now as an adult. Mm. Um, if you've never seen it, Ralph Bakshi has worked in fantasy a bunch. 
Fire and Ice is not very good, but it looks cool. Uh, but <laughs> I haven't uh, seen Fire and Ice. Oh, it's but... it's almost plotless, but by God, I mean he worked with Frank Frazetta, and that's kind of the only reason he did it is because he wanted to work with Frank Frazetta. Yeah. So it looks like a Frank Frazetta like painting Frank Frazetta, come to life, and that's awesome. But there's almost the story is crap, like it's mm-hmm. terrible. But it's it's fun enough to watch. Wizards is a great story, and it's got great characters, and it's awesome to look at. So it actually has a sci-fi element in that it takes place after a nuclear war has destroyed the planet. Mm -hmm. But in the wake of that nuclear war, uh, fantasy, fantasy creatures, fantasy worlds, elves, wizards, fairies, all these kinds of creatures have emerged from the wreckage. Where civilization and science has failed... Mm -hmm. And now all of these sort of pure things, these natural things, the natural world has kind of sprouted up amongst the wreckage. Uh, And in this world, there is indeed good and there is evil. Mm. Good is, uh, you know, wizards and, and fairies and everyone is just, you know, cracking jokes and very happy and they're also very horny. Uh, but uh, evil is evil as fuck and what they have discovered amongst uh, uh, all the debris mm. are Nazi propaganda films. <laughs> and the power of cinema and particularly the power of propaganda, of cinema, propaganda right? cinema and the power of fascism uh, has arisen its ugly head. Mm. And now they are rebuilding. These fantasy creatures are rebuilding the worst parts of civilization as mm. we know them. And the fairy tale creatures have to band together in order to stop that from happening. That's a very dark storyline. And without giving anything away, the resolution to that storyline, I consider perfect. I consider the actual resolution to when all said and done, all the like the two, like the evil wizard and the good wizard are together. The way that Ralph Bakshi resolves this issue, you know, it's daring and it's harsh and it's fascinating and it's not something I don't I know if I could or would do. But in the case of this story where everything is a moral parable, mm-hmm. that ending is mm-hmm. fucking incredible. Oh, yeah. I love that ending. Um this is a movie that kind of has everything. It has something innocent. It has something very insidious. Um, it has wonder and it has absolute cynicism. And it's about those two things clashing. Mm. And I think it is, I, mean, I haven't seen everything Ralph Bakshi's done, but it's, I think it's his mm. best work that I've seen. Okay. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, I mean, I'm fond of like sloppier films. Like yeah. I, I know not a lot of people like Fritz the cat, but I think, just it's it's disgusting in a way I enjoy. Sure, <laughs> I appreciate it. It's not my favorite. I haven't seen it in a long ass time. Yeah, I mean, revisit it's, it. it's, it's on Amazon. You just watch oh, Fritz the Cat. Okay. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of like great horror films and cult movies. Like Toxic Avengers on Bless them is on Amazon Prime. Uh, Can I you still imagine? love the original. It's crazy. I, I, I really hope there's like some 16 year old out there just sort of thumbing through Amazon Prime and finds the Toxic Avenger by accident. There's a lot of trauma films that I would never recommend to anyone, even if well, I enjoyed them as a kid. But I think the original mm, Toxic Avenger. Look, I think. Is, is, is a rite of passage. I, I think, think it's a cool if, film everyone... If the right kind of person encounters the Toxic Avenger at the right age, they're yeah. going to grow up weird. And I want <laughs> I, I want more weird... Those kinds of weirdos. Yeah. Uh, to- the Toxic Avenger is not on my list. No. Fantasy film. And I admire that you selected Wizards, because that, yeah. that's not widely seen, and I think it should be. I, I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, but yeah, it's not... Yeah. I, I saw it as a kid. I think a lot of people would find it somewhat inappropriate for kids, but yeah. it's not like ultra-violent or anything. Mm. It's just mature and yeah, weird. We, we were talking about how the 
1980s, sort of a lot of this tech and like fantasy imagery was really part of the conversation. You go to a video arcade, you watch uh, uh, something like Dragon's Lair. Um, there's a really well, great, in the 80s, you, in, did. In you could 80s. do it now. But... No, I meant in the 80s. Okay. Uh, um, there's a really great sequence in Stranger Things uh, where the kids, like the season starts off with the kids playing Dragon's Lair. Mm. Like one of them has to run off and get like a huge new fistful of quarters so they can keep on playing Dragon's that Lair. Because they understood, the makers of that show, what Dragon's Lair represented. That is wasting all of your allowance money on something that is completely impossible. Completely impossible? Mm -hmm. If you told me you could beat Dragon's Lair, you're fucking lying. Here's the problem with Dragon's Lair. Mm. If you never played Dragon's Lair, by the way, a legendary video game, at a time when video games looked like Space Invaders, all of a sudden there's a game in the arcade that looks like The An Secret of Nim. Film. Yeah, because yeah. it was done by Don Bluth, who did The Secret of Nim. And every scene, every screen was hand-painted and fucking gorgeous. And mm. the idea was every screen would be uh, this brave, gallant knight who's trying to rescue a princess mm. from an evil guy. And... Dirk the Daring. Dirk the Daring. Yeah. Uh, and every screen, what he would be walking, you know, down a hallway or across a moat mm -hmm. or through a room, and something bad was about to happen to him, and, and you had a split second to figure out where he should go, what he should grab, mm. and if and you it, don't, it would be it would be indicated by a flashing yellow light. Yeah, it would appear for a split second. Oh yeah, and if you weren't right on it, you die. And it's not necessarily clear. How you're supposed to interact with that? Am I supposed to use the sword on that? Am I supposed to move the the, the, the joystick yeah. towards it? It's not clear at all. And even if you figure out, okay, here's how I get past this thing, which will usually take you at least two tries. Uh, here's the problem. Every time you play Dragon Slayer, the rooms are randomized. <laughs> so this comes from an era of video games in which in order to learn how to beat, I don't know, Mega Man or Super Mario, you memorize patterns. Mm. You would understand, okay, the mushroom comes here, and now I know the jump there, and I jump up there, and there's a thing. There's a consistency to it. You, mm. you basically memorize things. It was a very right-brained activity at the time. Dragon Slayer was just designed to bilk you out of quarters because even if you learn something, there's no guarantee you'll ever get it again. Mm. Fuckers. Yeah. It, and even if you're really good at video games, it's not the kind of thing like that applied the skills you're acquiring from something yeah. like this Pac-Man. Totally different. Yeah. Very, very weird. Anyway. Um... Where was I going? I don't know. Oh, um, much uh, no, I, was, I was talking about sort of the the fantasy attitude in the 1980s. Yeah. And I feel like a, you know a lot of the technology was introducing a lot of things, and I think there was a lot of imagery that is just unique to the era hasn't hasn't been uh, imitated since. Uh, and I'm going to talk about now the Dark Crystal. There you go. Uh, which one of the few fantasy films that has nothing to do with humanity. Uh, even when you look at something like Lord of the Rings, you know, clearly this takes place on, uh, I'm not really sure what the actual technicals of it, if it's a distant planet or if it's another dimension. or I think it's, it's a vague uh, era of Earth's past. Yeah, it's supposed to be Earth's past that is so un unpossibly ancient that, of course, the magic existed. Yeah. It's medieval England. But Lord uh, of the Rings is a story about how magic left. Basically, that's the uh, end of the story is the elves and all the magical mm -hmm. creatures going off to some magical realm and we'll never see them again. Yes. And, and so it's the middle earth. Exactly. It's uh, middle era. So but it's earth like hum human beings lived there. There's human characters. Um, you could argue that Star Wars has no humans in, in it because it's far away in a distant galaxy. They just happen to look like humans. Yeah. And they say the word human a couple times, if I recall. But um, yeah, it's it's it, it's humans. They're humans. They're, That's they're, basically they're, it. Yeah, yeah, it's the same basic vibe. I'm wondering if if Star Wars will ever be bold enough to like 
It's like, oh no, I found a time vortex and I landed on this planet and they start like perpetuating the human species on Earth. They're, they're ever going to like... I remember when I was a kid, that. when I was a kid, there was this theory that like episode nine, if we mm. ever got there, would be, would end with like astronauts on the moon finding R2-D2 and that's how, <laughs> that's how the story was told through yeah. R2-D2's memory banks. That's why oh, R2-D2 okay. was there the whole time, which... Mm. Not that it, it's, well, it's kind of corny and ending, but it would make yeah. sense. It would work fine. I, I wrote some articles for Geekscape way back in the day where this was before J.J. Abrams did the whole Star Wars uh, mm-hmm. 789 where I wrote reviews of Star Wars 789 as if I had already seen them. Like they yeah. were made not, and there was a review. So I was like criticizing things that the story was doing wrong while I was making up the story. It was yeah. this weird meta exercise. I love that you got some emails time. from people genuinely wondering how you had seen them. Yeah, how did you see these movies? You notice the date said 2020 and I'm writing this in like 2013. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was a joke. It, 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 it was a joke. It was just sort of for funsies. Although funnily enough, by 2020 mm. we had them. That's, yeah, we did have them. <laughs> But uh, in 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 my version of things, you know, at the end of episode nine, they had built. Oh, this is so dumb. It was essentially it was essentially the life star, like as opposed to the death oh, star. I love you, you corny. Jerk. Where, where, where it, well, but it was it was the bad guy's weapon. It's like oh, we can terraform. It was like the Genesis Project. Okay. We can terraform planets, and and they were, and it, <laughs> better than what they. Had. And and at, and at the end, everything had fallen apart, and some like various factions were fighting over control of this thing. It was like terraforming planets left and right, and then like they shot their like most powerful beam and. It just sort of drifted off into space and then in a post-credit sequence you saw a little tiny blip and the idea was that was the creation of earth they made earth at the end of episode nine i I like that better than what they did Uh, yeah (laughs) i I don't necessarily like that but i like them better i'm no filmmaker i'm not a screenwriter but i like my idea better (laughs) (laughs) there was a there was a there was a a superman series called all-star superman in Mm -hmm. which um Superman was dying, and he mm. had to perform a series of impossible tasks before... It was Hercules. Uh, he, yeah, yeah he was, it was the Hercules story, right. basically. And one of the impossible tasks involved him making, like, becoming a god mm. and creating a universe. And that okay. universe was Earth. Superman oh, is yes. our god. Like, they literally did. And it's here's the thing. That was not the point of the story. That was a throwaway. <laughs> such a great story. All yeah, Superman's really amazing. Uh, in the 1980s, there was the Dark Crystal. Uh, yeah. The Dark Crystal has nothing to do with humanity. It takes place uh, on a, a distant world, uh, but not in a science fiction-y sort of way. A mythic place mm. uh, where there's... Uh, old mystics who are so impossibly ancient, they've forgotten what they're mystical about. Uh, and it happen- It so happens that the mystics are um, op- opposed by this sort of very evil, very hedonistic kind of force of royals, like the, the wealthy classes. The who Skeksis. The, the Skeksis, who are, also, who are themselves like deteriorating, because they've been, like they've been hedonists vultures for... Yeah, they've been, yeah, they look like vultures, and they wear these gigantic, uh, like headdresses and robes and they have there's this wonderful sequence in the dark crystal and i just wish they put more sequences like this in fantasy movies Mm. where there's no dialogue the skeksis are just eating and they're disgusting eaters (laughs) and that's the whole point of the scene we just get to see what kind of messy horrendous people again attention to detail really counts when you're creating a Mm. a fairy tale universe or fantasy like star wars like the original star wars one of the things Mm. that made that universe feel so remarkable and lived in was there were little things that weren't important Mm -hmm. like when they're walking around the death star there's just this one little little black droid the size of a foot Mm -hmm. that just scurries along 
off to do something. Yeah, it's not important. It's not a detail. That's, that's you, some sort of maintenance yeah, thing in that, the future. It's, the it's, future, where this universe. Yeah, it's yeah. just a random detail that if they were shooting on location, they might have just found. <laughs> and that's something that just if you're not putting yeah. in the effort, you're not going to think to put that stuff in there. But uh, the, the the evil Skeksis have learned that uh, there's two Gelflings left alive. Gelflings are little elf-like beings yeah. that have lived in this land and have previously been hunted to <laughs> extinction, and their souls have been turned into liquid, and the Skeksis <laughs> drink their liquid to stay young, and they're they're starting to age out because they've run out of soul liquid. But they decide to hunt down the Gelflings. The Gelflings are yeah these little elf creatures. Uh, are now on a quest to take a little shard of a crystal and reunite it with a larger piece, larger crystal, uh-huh. and that will magically reunite the the kingdom. Yeah, heal the. Uh, it, it, thing, uh, yeah. The storytelling is, you know, cliched. It's that usual hero's journey crap. But um, I think the world it takes place in is so odd, yeah, that it's irresistible. Yeah, I like the fact that it is so far removed from humanity that you get sort of lost in how elaborate and strange it is. Um, See, I, find I feel it the same way about yeah. the movie Fantastic Planet, a science fiction movie. Yeah, I love which, Fantastic Which does Planet. have, have human-looking creatures in well, them. Well, no, they're but... human. The idea is that, like, humanity would, like... I don't know if it's all of humanity or just mm. some of them, but had been, like, found by a giant alien species and mm. were their pets. And but, it's yeah, about, but, like, but there's humanity, no, there's like, no discovering their, there's, like, there's sense no, of self again. Well, but their sense of self, but through the view of this species that they've been living with all this time. Yeah, yeah. My there's actually is, no connection to, like, how they, how Earth became this way. Or I feel how they it got is tacitly implied, but maybe yeah. that's just my interpretation. Yeah. And and the way that the film climaxes actually has nothing to do with, like, their Earth legacy or the yeah. Earth's history or anything no, like no, that. No, no, no. That's not it. I just feel like mm. it was implied when I but was watching it. I felt like it was implied that at some point. It's like mm. Dark City. Mm. Like, at some point, they got these mm. people. And the. Something like the Dark Crystal goes to the very word fantasy. Mm-hmm. These are fantasy films. We should be living and reveling in the most wild parts of our imagination. I'm always really let down when you use the word fantasy as a genre and it just means elves, yeah. knight, knights, dragons. The usual. There's no fantastical element about it anymore. The there's I- no imagination to it anymore. The You're idea sort of repeating that, somebody else at that point. The idea that we could call something fantastic mm. that is repetitious is like fundamentally absurd. Yeah. The idea that there should not be... There can be bad fantasy movies. There should not be boring fantasy movies. No. There's no excuse in that genre. There, there, There's not. The whole point make, is supposed to be larger than life and crazy. Yeah. And, and again, goes to Lord yeah. of the Rings. They're using traditional imagery. Right. And like, I, I appreciate. And this is this is the one thing you you put on your list that yeah. I have. I think I've seen everything you've talked about. And right. um, in which I'm just like I, this one's just not for me. All right. And I talked about it a little bit at the beginning where I, I appreciate the effort and care that went mm. into this universe. I appreciate the unbridled imagination. I think the Skeksis are some of the best movie villains of the <laughs> 80s at least. <laughs> Which is saying something. There are a lot of great uh, villains in that decade. Terrifying creatures. And they're fantastic. They're great, great movie villains. Um, but for me, I feel like because it is real, because it is puppets, there's not mm. like this veneer above animation even stop motion animation where I can just I know that that's like you know life size or whatever 
And because, like, I know I should be able to interact with that, but there's, like, this... There's just this distance, I feel, from it. Mm-hmm. And I have trouble getting absorbed in it. And maybe it's an excuse to say that I feel like it would be more interesting if the protagonist was human. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's me wanting to project. Maybe that's me not wanting to do the work. Mm-hmm. Then again, maybe I think it's the movie's fault for making the protagonist kind of a boring non-entity. Like, yeah. What do you remember? Jen. What do you remember about him? What do you remember about him? Like, what, what's interesting about his he, character? He, he's kind of afraid. That's kind of his That's only it, right. You know, like, yeah. like, at least Luke is kind of a brat yeah. in Star yeah. Wars, you know? At least, you know... Uh, uh, you know, Frodo has all of his friends who are, you know, assholes or greedy well, well, or he's, cowards. I mean, and, and he's also, he's, you know, very much out of his element. Yeah. And you feel that throughout. Yeah, know, yeah. His... And I just feel like uh, it with the Dark Crystal, I don't get that. I don't have an in. Mm. There's no in. And maybe, you know, making the protagonist human would have been that. Maybe that would have betrayed the idea. But maybe there should have been something to get me in there a little better. Because I just have trouble connecting to the narrative and mm. all i'm looking at is the craft yeah. but i admire the craft the, the craft is amazing yeah um, I, I like the dark crystal a lot um I, I like it better than labyrinth which was you know, the other uh big tenzin movie from the I 80s love labyrinth. Um, i toyed with putting labyrinth on my list because yeah. i appreciated as sort of a python-esque fable and it was written by one of the pythons yeah it's terry it, jones it, right terry jones yeah, wrote it, it's, yeah it's and it feels that way i think i find it very witty i really like it a lot it's on my like honorable mentions Okay. Um, but I, I feel uh, it's in, in terms of like story, it's just like the shabbiest thing, though. I just eh, that's fine. I think that's okay sometimes. Yeah. Um, but uh, so which why I didn't make my my mm. proper list. Um, but yeah, I admire the Dark Crystal more than I like it. Okay. Um, my that's next fair. film is a film that so let's pick up the pace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, few, we're, we're running. We're running. Here, we only yeah. have a few left. Uh, my next film was a film that this was my Star Wars. All right. Well, everyone else was watching Star Wars over and over again, and I saw it multiple times too as a kid, and I liked it a lot. Well, everyone else was watching Star Wars. The movie I was watching again and again, the larger-than-life hero's journey mm. fantasy story that I was watching again and again was John Borman's Excalibur, which is kind of fucked mm. up because that movie is violent and sex-filled <laughs> and crazy. It's really just a, a over-the-top masterpiece of, like, macho filmmaking because it's all just shoving it lances is, is, into people. It's and, really testicular. It is. But it, I yeah. think I think that's important, though. I think it's arguing that the fantasy of King Arthur and the Round Table and Merlin, that these are male fantasies. Mm. These are very male-centered uh, uh, views. And in fact, the whole story kicks off with just guy who can't keep it in his pants. That's it. Yeah, more or less. Everything probably would have been fine. Every, in fact, every single thing that goes wrong in Excalibur, according to John Borman's version of it, uh, is everything would have been fine. But if you, lust. Yeah. But lust. Lust fucked you up every single time. Every single time. Even Merlin gets fucked up by it because it blinds him. And that's not, and that's not even women. Because I don't find it to be a misogynistic film or, or, you know, it's sexist, but only because I think the original story is sexist. I think it is arguing that men are stupid creatures who yeah. are ruled, yeah, who are ruled by sure. their loins and ruled by their egos. And yet that does lead them to do really interesting things. <laughs> and there's a lot of really interesting things that happen in this story. I love the look of this film. It's full mm. of mist, but also vibrant color. And uh, 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 magic, but 
the magic is a little muted and the magic is not about giant dragons and things. The magic is about how we sort of warp the land and warp our destinies. Mm. Uh, I love that everything has a star filter on it. (laughs) That's my least favorite thing. I know. The the star filter drives me crazy. I'm fine with it in this particular film because I just think it gives it a larger than life quality. I love the scene at the end where Arthur reclaims the throne and reclaims his identity and rides through the land and the land heals itself as he rides through it as mm. the Carmina Barana like, <laughs> blasts through. I love the bit. It's noteworthy, I think, considering how guttural and testicular this movie is, that this is the movie that we see on like the like the poster of. At the beginning of Batman v Superman, when Batman's family leaves the theater, oh, that, that's what Excalibur, young Bruce Wayne, Excalibur is either playing at that theater or it's playing next week. But either way, that's what Zack Snyder name checks. And so at the end, when like Superman like impales the dude on the lance, and he's like, he's copying Excalibur for him. <laughs> that is the er example of macho mm. fantasy, and I actually agree. Mm. And I think that there is an element of machismo in a lot of our fantasy that should go. Criticized, yeah, well, I think for, it's for uh, sure. I yeah. think, but at the same the, time, the idea the, that uh, yeah. you know, the, the male as a as requiring violence to be a hero is yeah. something we get from these tales of night errantry. Yeah, and, these these pulpy novels with yellow tinged paper with mm. Frank Frazetta covers. That's what a lot of fantasy is, and I wanted a film on here that represented that. And I toyed with uh, you mm. know, kind of the Barbarian, which is a classic. Um, the Sword and the Sorcerer, which is another very testicular movie. I think I, it's a little underrated. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, it's 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 very macho, but it's very fun. I like that one too. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think Excalibur has this wonderful, vaunted, elevated level of craft to it. It has a fantastic cast. I mean, it's every I mean, people who weren't even famous yet, like Liam Neeson and Patrick Stewart and Gabriel mm. Byrne. Um, it has this sense of scale. It understands that King Arthur has a place in our collective imagination. Mm-hmm. And it wanted to tell the ultimate version of it, the ultimate larger-than-life version, but not sanitize it at all. Make it ugly when it needs to be, make it violent when it needs to be, make it gross when it needs to be, make it cynical when it needs to be, make it judgmental when it needs to be. Uh, and I love that about this movie. It, it's been a while since I've seen Excalibur. Yeah. I, I saw it on a VHS tape when I was maybe 19 or so. And I remember being ra- rather unimpressed. Mm. Um, something about John Borman's pacing just drives me up the friggin' wall. <laughs> uh, he'll, and it didn't help that, you know, I had only recently for the first time also seen John Borman's The Exorcist 2. Oh, The Exorcist 2 sucks. Like, there's, no, the there's no defending 2, that the movie. The Exorcist 2 is the pits. And I the started Exorcist movie is one of like, those bad movies that is not only as bad as you've heard, it's worse. It's worse than you've heard. And it doesn't get better on repeat viewings no. I can say that it's not like oh let's watch this for campy reasons yeah. this isn't fun guys and the, to their credit they so, didn't just do The Exorcist again but mm. maybe they should have done something good <laughs> I don't know so I was like looking for a stylistic comparison so I was thinking about The Exorcist 2 a lot oh, while I'm watching Excalibur no. John Borman I think is a great filmmaker a lot of the time some of the time John Borman is such he he it's John Borman is a filmmaker who strikes me as always making big swings. Making, I think he yeah. hits more than he misses, but his misses are 
Man. baffling. I'm, I'm also one of the weirdos who doesn't like Point Blank, but, uh, you know. Yeah, well, Point Blank is really mired in its yeah. time. There's a lot of things I like about it, though. All right. Um, what do right. you got next? Uh, next up, uh, speaking of charging through a forest, uh, watching things regrow, uh, let's talk about uh, Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke, ah. um, which I'm, I'm sure is on your list as well. Um, well, sort of. I'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Um, yeah, Princess Mononoke uh, seems like the one time... Uh, Hayao Miyazaki really went for something other than uh, sort of like childlike wonder when he made a film. Mm-hmm. Even when he's working with, some, with something a little bit more mature, like The Wind Rises, there is sort of a sense of awe to his movies. And there is a sense of awe to Princess Mononoke. In mm-hmm. fact, it's bloody spectacular. Mm-hmm. But it's also maybe his angriest film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about he's a, mad at humanity. He's, yeah, this, this is a film that it seeks to sort of punish and teach much more directly than a lot of his other movies. Even the one that's post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Like, even that one's a little bit more upbeat. We're, we're talking about Nausicaa. Nausicaa of the yeah. Valley of the Winds. Uh, yeah. This one is, uh, yeah, really kind of bitter yeah. and about sort of humanity. And it also understands that there is a good deal of ambivalence uh, and ambiguity to uh, sort of charging through these fantasy universes. It's about a young man uh, a monster attacks his village. He finds when he kills the monster that it's a, a god, like a forest god, mm-hmm. uh, in the form of a giant boar that had been taken over by something that had been tainted by technology that he'd never heard of before. Yeah, a bullet. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's a bullet in its body. And uh, with sort of a, a, an arm that's infected by a demon, he goes into the woods and finds that there is this technologically advanced town that has developed uh, firearms, but in addition to putting bullets in local gods, they're also building a thriving community that's helping a lot of the people that would be discarded or killed otherwise. Yeah, they're not cartoonishly so, um, evil. This isn't so, yeah. like you know wizards or anything like that where they represent that. They're actually very conflicted and interesting. Like it's a it's a town made up of lepers. And former sex former workers. Former sex workers, yeah. Who are, yeah. Who, are, who are, like, running the bellows. So it's actually this place of, of deep human redemption. Mm-hmm. And our young hero has to figure out what is the morally right thing to do here. Yeah. And uh, what, what, is there going to be a balance between the technology and the natural world? And the way the natural world is depicted in Princess Mononoke oh. is unlike anything you've ever seen. Jesus Christ. These weird wilderness gods, gigantic two-tailed wolves, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the elk god that sort of represents the the spirit of everything. Uh, there, there's just one. They show it in all the previews, just because it's so spectacular. Where we see its hoof landing on sort of this empty space, and a bunch of plants grow right around its foot oh, as it gorgeous. and as it lifts its foot up, they all die. Yeah. So it is this weird sort of deity of, of light and dark. It's a very, uh, I mean, it's a very Japanese movie in that it deals with uh, ambivalence. There's not. It's not a world of duality. It's not the dark versus the light. Yeah. It's the yin and the yang. They yeah. are one and the same. And it's about finding sort of a balance between those two things, which, of course, to a Western eye makes it seem either difficult to grasp or you maybe maybe even new. I saw it when oh, yeah. I, I saw it when I was a teenager, and I knew you know about these sort of ideas, but I'd never seen it presented in sort of such a dazzling fantasy context before. And the title character is a wild child who's been living with the gods, mm-hmm. who is much more in tune with the natural world, and the the male hero has to deal with this idea of what's the right thing to do in sort of bringing her back around to humanity or letting her live in the woods. Yeah. Um, Princess Mononoke is a film that came out in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. It came out in Japan, was a huge hit, and it came out in America. Uh, they actually redubbed it, and the dub was written by Neil Gaiman. 
Oh, golly. Okay. Where he had literal translations of the lines, but the lines themselves were, uh, you know, they, they didn't feel like natural English speech. And so they were just like, well, who can we get to do this who would be able to make it kind of special? And so they got Neil Gaiman. And I think he did a pretty noble job. There's also a few things Neil Gaiman helped change, which I think uh, affect the way the narrative goes. So although I actually really like the dub, if you've never seen the original like with subtitles, I recommend watching it that way because I think you know, there's a lot of nuance that gets missing. Here's what I got to admit. I've never seen it dubbed. I've, okay. o- I've only ever seen it subtitled. That's fine. The dub is very good. Yeah. I want to <laughs> clarify here, but they there's a few things that they change that might not seem like a big deal, but they recontextualize scenes and characters, and mm-hmm. I think the original version is better. Um, when this movie came out, I had literally been complaining to people. <laughs> I had been saying... I haven't seen a fantasy movie mm. that feels like I want a fantasy movie to feel yeah. ever. Mm. And Princess Mononoke came out and I was like, this is exactly <laughs> it. This is exactly what I wanted. This is the, It has adventure and it has love, but it has imagery and ideas that I've never seen before. And it deals with big ideas, but it doesn't simplify them. Mm. Because, yeah, there are no bad guys in this story. That's the thing. Hayao Miyazaki is very angry about humanity for what it's doing to nature. Mm. But he also understands that humanity is kind of a part of nature. And in order for us to live and thrive and have uh, the society that we need in order to lift people up out of circumstances, we do need to take from nature. Mm. And that's kind of an ugly thing that we do have to admit to ourselves, but that needs discipline and balance. And this is a story that tells that in the most thrilling way possible. In addition to being gorgeously animated and totally fucking awesome, the one element here that I feel sometimes gets overlooked, Joe Hisaishi's score is one of the great movie scores, period. End of sentence. Mm. I would put it on a top 20 list at least. Just nails it. It's got wonder and romance and mystery and majesty, and I love it to pieces. Um, the next film I want to pick is an adaptation of a classic fairy, uh, not fairy tale, classic fantasy story that had been adapted many, many times before. Some very, very popular, but the one that I think did it best is the one that nobody saw. And that is P.J. Hogan's Peter Pan. <laughs> P.J. Hogan's we, Peter we, Pan we, I, is I, amazing. We need to give up on Peter Pan. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, even the 1953 version that Disney put out, the animated film, mm-hmm. uh, is it, kind of an annoying film. Uh, there's stuff I, I, I like about like, it. There's, there's stuff I like. Uh, Hans, Hans Conrad. Conrad. Yeah. I love Hans Conrad. The, the hook is great in that hook movie. Hook is great. Let's not look at the Indian characters. No. At all. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Tinkerbell is sort of the big tink- takeaway because Tinkerbell mm-hmm. is sort of spun off into her own series. Well, she's uniquely films, visualized. And... She's got an interesting personality. Yeah, she, well, and also you, just like a sex bomb. They, well, yeah. they they designed her after Marilyn Monroe, after all. Um, but, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's, yeah that she's, makes she's, sense now. Yeah. But um, yeah, Hans Conrad is good. I, Peter Pan is... I, I don't kind of not that interesting in that movie. No, I don't think I, I don't like that movie yeah. as much as I think I'm supposed um, to. But yeah, my my apologies to its great number of defenders and lovers. But Hook is the pits. Uh, Hook is not a good movie. Hook is the one. I think Dustin Hoffman is doing interesting things. <laughs> That's what I'll say for mm. Hook. I like some of the production design in Hook. Mm. I think uh, John Williams did a nice score for Hook in attempting to make Hook 
new and cool in 90s. Ev- like, I'm sorry, Rufio is Poochie. <laughs> I know people like yeah, Rufio. Yeah. Every time Rufio says bangerang, yeah. all I can think of is, my name is Poochie D, and I'm here to yeah. say, that's all I can hear. I'm bang- where, where, am, where am I going to get the, the drink collector's drinking cup for oh, Hook? Hook felt, is totally in my it, face. It felt so over-commercialized. Uh, the idea that all these kids are, like, eating nothing but cake frosting that, I, that's that they summon from their imagination... It, it's gross. It's gross. Um, <laughs> That's not my uh, problem with yeah. the movie, but yeah, fair enough. Uh, Joe Wright's pen. I, re- I rewatched – you know what? I rewatched it recently and I'm actually on its side now. I actually – I didn't like it when I first saw I, it, but I, I think I, I admire just sort of how how – uh, I guess garish might be the right word. I just, uh, think, it, I just think it makes it stupid. <laughs> I think it makes it's, it really it's, stupid. It's like a Peter Pan origin story, which is, not is a, good is a dumb idea, but yeah. you know, a, a lot of the, the – the, bizarre visual stuff I think really carries that film over I can't get behind it but fair enough the one film that got it right is PJ Hogan's film from 2005 I think Um, Uh, 2003 2003 2003 Uh, and it came out right around the time Finding Neverland came out and that Mm. movie got a bunch of Oscar nominations and they just overshadowed this Mm. no one noticed that a real Peter Pan movie came out Uh, it's astounding it is every single fantastical thing about this movie is pushed to the nines every color is brighter mm. and tinted in such a way that, like, the, the clouds are all the, the, the shape, color, and consistency of cotton candy. Mm. Like, everything is gorgeous about it. Everything that is wicked about it is more wicked. Jason Isaacs plays Hook. Jason Isaacs is the only Hook. I like Hans Conrad <laughs> quite a bit. Jason Isaacs mm. is the mm. Captain Hook for me, for... For two main reasons, in addition to just being looking dash sexy, mm-hmm. um, one is the scene where he is fighting Peter Pan and they're flying around, and he has grabbed Tinkerbell and he's got fairy dust and he can fly now. Mm-hmm. But what makes Hook happy? What are his happy thoughts? And one of the things that he chants to himself is puppy blood. Like, that's the kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> impish awesomeness. But for me, the scene that just makes this movie is Peter Pan is a story of a boy who won't grow up. Hook mm. is a is a symbol of his stunted growth. Yeah, he's this like just this he's this fairy tale imaginary character that Pan lives with. There's a scene where Pan and Wendy are dancing in the woods, mm. and it's kind of romantic, and it's a moment of pubescent realization for both of them. Mm. The difference is Wendy is actually willing to grow up with it and Pan is rejecting it. But there's a, but uh, Tinkerbell is watching this and she's jealous. Mm. And then Hook is sneaking his way through the woods and he sees it as well. He's not so much jealous, but he cries. Not weeps, mm. just tears. Because he realizes he's being left behind. And there's something so beautiful about that. But on top of it all, it just fucking awesome. No movie I have ever seen, especially live action, has ever captured flight as energetically, as beautifully as Peter Pan does. The way uh. that Pan Pan doesn't fly like Superman. Pan doesn't glide. Pan is just complete. Oh, the pan- the glide? Yeah. yeah, he is just completely unhindered by space. He can just flit to any direction like a Wonka Vader. At a second's notice, and he does it with like all the natural thing that anyone would flinch. Mm. What an astoundingly great achievement 
this movie is. Mm-hmm. And if you've never seen it, please see it. It's so fucking good. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, I, I guess I only have two left. Same. Um, do you have Pan's Labyrinth on your list? I do, actually. Right, I was so we'll saving it for Pan- my second list. Uh, yeah. right, we'll talk about Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth I appreciate because... It's a, a good fantasy film. It's a good nightmarish fantasy film. It's also a deconstructionist fantasy film yeah. about uh, the function and also the harm fantasy can play in our lives. Uh, it's uh, it's also a very sharp criticism of uh, the, the Franco regime. It's about a young girl who moves with her mother in with her new wicked stepfather. A new wicked stepfather is... A, a murderous general who wants to kill the local rebels who are living in the mm-hmm. woods. He's not a nice dude. No. Uh, in fact, a terrible the, human being. The, the woman, the the mom character is only um, has only done this as sort of a way to protect herself and her daughter. And her daughter, and whether or not what she's seeing is real or not is a matter of debate. Uh, starts finding herself sort of fleeing from the situation by going into these increasingly dangerous fantasy scenarios. Mm. She's she meets a, a fawn in 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 the Spanish language cut it's just a fawn in the English language cut I think it's literally pan. Yeah. But uh the Mitafon, this gigantic creature with big heads and scary eyes and it's kind of like really threatening and says, "Here's your mystic quest. You're a princess, here's your mystic quest." She's yeah. like, "Oh, I understand that." So she goes on a mystic quest, and one she has to reach down the throat of a frog to find mm. a, I think it's a key. Uh, and, you know, and another, she has to face off against uh, this big, droopy, Mitch McConnell-looking creature. Oh. That, <laughs> that, 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 you know, like, yeah. like has no, like, has the pale, pale man. Pal, yeah, the pale oh, man God, has, like, the eyes and the palms of what his hands. What an astounding and, creation that thing is. Yeah, yeah that, thing is, that thing's ooh. really amazing. Uh, the fawn and that creature is played by the same actor, uh, uh, Doug, Doug Jones. Doug Jones, um, yeah. Brilliant and, uh, physical actor. And this film is sort of having its cake and eating it too, in a way, because it is saying that fantasy does have a very powerful hold over the imagination, especially the imagination of a young person. And if it's not, if it is real, she's going through this weird fantasy adventure. If it's not real, she is employing fantasy as a way to escape the horrors of war, which yeah. uh, is a good vital function, especially if you're a child. Uh, but you can tell through these fantasy sequences, and I think Guillermo del Toro, in interviews, does it the way he talks about fantasy. This doesn't bear out, but I think he might be having some sort of cynical take on the way fantasy functions because the challenges get more and more threatening. Things get much more, you know, facing intimidating, in the dra- intimidating, and, facing yeah. in the direction of death in the way that it, it's not going to be fun for a little kid anymore. And we realize that either the real world is infecting your fantasy to such a degree that it's not going to do the job anymore, or it's distracting her to such a degree that she's going to come about to ruin anyway. So there are some things that fantasy can't cure. And I feel like Pan's Labyrinth has this wonderful ambiguous ending where the little girl either is successful or she's died miserably. Yeah. And, and you, you can have it both ways. It's 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 a bit uh, of a it's a bit of a Rorschach test. I yeah. think it depends on how optimistic you are. Um, I've watched it multiple times, and every time I kind of have a different take on that ending, uh-huh. which I think is a, the testament to a really great ambiguous ending. Yeah, where it evolves with you, with your mm. mood, or with your age, or you know, with your philosophy. Um, I, Pan's Labyrinth is another film where. 
you know, I feel like uh, Guillermo del Toro, and I feel like he did this especially with this movie and with Hellboy 2, mm-hmm. um, was dealing with elements of fantasy, but he wasn't restricted by anything we are currently familiar with. Uh-huh. Pan's Labyrinth feels like a new fairy tale, a brand new one, mm-hmm. even though it takes place, you know, half a century ago. And... Yeah, I think I think he is processing something very, very dark. If not about himself, mm. then at least about uh, history and the way that uh, the evils that adults do mm. uh, trickle down and affect children, even if children don't understand the whole context. Yeah, this little yeah. girl doesn't know everything about the horrors of the, of the mm. Franco uh, mm. uh, regime. regime yeah. But she knows that her new stepfather is evil. Mm. And that is being either played with by fantasy creatures and giving her some form of demented escape. Mm. Or it is being interpreted in her mind as best she can through the veil of fantasy. Either way, the movie works perfectly. Mm. Uh, it It is a masterpiece. Uh, and I love the pieces and let you make them. I'm torn between this and The Devil's Backbone as yeah. Guillermo del Toro's best film. Uh, I think his Spanish language films are, are way more interesting than sort of his American fantasies. They're more personal, um, that's for sure. The American fantasies are just the uh, wee monsters, you know, I, they're, they're, which is fine. Guillermo del you know, Toro's a big goofy kid sometimes, I and I think I think that's something people have trouble with because they want to take him really seriously because the movies of his you can take seriously yeah. are usually masterpieces. And... And the other uh, half are he, he's having fun. Yeah. He's just he, it's him playing. I, I feel just, I feel like he's I like, got the, got I like, like that a, dichotomy. He's got like a fifty fifty track record. His highs are really high, but yeah, I just made some some stinkers. I don't think too. his lows are that low. I think yeah. his lows are always like interesting, at the very least visually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Hellboy Two is great to look at. It's a piece of crap, I, but it's interesting to look. I disagree. At. I think in yeah. some ways it, it's his masterpiece is either Pan's Labyrinth. Or Hellboy 2. Oh. I also one of those people who believe that there are multiple masterpieces that are possible. <laughs> it's not the thing that yeah. defines your mastery. It's an example of mastery. But yeah. anyway. Well, what's your, your best? My number one, and when you said Princess Mononoke and I said I sort of picked it. Uh-huh. What I mean was I couldn't figure out which, which Hayao Miyazaki film to pick. So I thought <laughs> I'd wait and see what you did. All right. Um, because so you, you pivoted to Spirit Away. No. Totoro. No, I, I, uh, my, I, was, I was debating between four. Okay. Princess Mononoke, Masterpiece. I love it. Spirited Away. I, I, it's not my favorite, but it's so unique and distinctive, and I love it. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, Kiki's Delivery Service, which is just an absolute delight of a motion picture. But I think My Neighbor Totoro is the one for me. And okay. I think My Neighbor Totoro actually would be a fascinating uh, double feature with Pan's Labyrinth. Because they're both stories about little girls going off to isolated houses and encountering... Discovering fantasy creatures. And yeah. discovering fantasy creatures who, in, who sort of give them the tools through which to work through whatever strife they're dealing with. Mm. The the difference is, is that... Pan's uh, is really cynical. Yeah. There's not a cynical hair on that creature's body in My and, Neighbor Totoro. But it doesn't feel false. It doesn't feel Disney-fied. It feels just that there's this sense of wonder about the world mm. that we shouldn't ever forget. Mm. And there's something... One of the things I love most about this movie... First off, it's beautifully animated. The story is incredibly simple. There's hardly any plot to speak of until at least the third act. Mm. And yet you never feel like it needs it. It's just this constant sense of mood and place where it is peaceful and wonderful and magic is there to make the world better. Not mm. to fight anything, not to kill, just to make things grow and to make days nice. 
<laughs> but uh, the thing about it that I, I really did do think is kind of unique amongst a lot of fantasy stories is um, when the little girls moved into this house, they're moving in with their dad because their mother is in a hospital mm. for a nonspecific ailment, but it's pretty bad. Mm. And they moved into this house to be a little closer to her while she tries to recuperate. And they move into the house, and they're looking around, and they're like, oh, this place is great. Look, the floorboards creak. This is really cool. And then they go up into the attic, and they see little soot monsters. Hmm. Soot sprites. Yeah. Little, little creatures made of soot. They're mm-hmm. just dust, like dust personified. And they see these things like, oh, Dad, we just saw a bunch of soot sprites. And Dad's just like, really? That's awesome. That's good luck. He never says that these things mm-hmm. don't exist. Adults are in on the wonderment. They might not <laughs> experience all of it. But it's about a world in which we accept magic as part of our daily lives. Not a humdrum part, but part of it. Mm. And there's something about that that I find so uplifting. Mm. And again, not in this Disney fake way where like, we everything's great, let's buy products. But like, mm. you know, I think everything's going to be okay. I think, as although there are bad things in the world and there's death and there's strife... I think there's no denying that there's also wonder and mm. magic and kindness and beauty and little acts of decency that actually like come back around and mm. and make our our lives a lot better. I feel absolutely at peace mm. when I experience the fantasy yeah. of my neighbor Totoro. And although I am enraptured mm. by the fantasy of Kiki's Delivery Service, although I am challenged by uh, the fantasy of Princess Mononoke. And although I am fascinated by the mm. fantasy of Spirited Away, a movie that makes you feel at one with the universe, <laughs> that is very special. So I'm, in the end, I probably would have picked that anyway. Mm. But yeah, My Neighbor Totoro, but it's kind of a tie. No, <laughs> Where, I, like everything yummy is I can no, get I, in the I, fantasy I, I, I chose uh, my, uh, Princess Mononoke as sort of a great fantasy film because I think it bears more of those fable-like elements that, mm-hmm. that I think the genre saying fantasy would denote. Uh, my favorite is still uh, it's a tie between Spirited Away and The Wind Rises. Um, okay. I, I think Spirited Away is in in a big way one of his most mature works, mm. uh, and and The Wind Rises most certainly. So, what's what, what, is uh, that your number one though? What's your no, number my one well, my number one is p- perhaps a little predictable. It's uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, based on oh, the yeah, by, that. by by L. Frank Baum. Uh, it's <laughs> I don't know why I didn't pick that actually. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so silly. You know, like the best known movie ever made. It's uh, up there, yeah. It's, um, I, what can I say about the Wizard of Oz? You've seen it. You know it. If you, if you I hope you've seen it. I hope you've seen it. Yeah. It if, might be one of those things that's so you, famous you might not have gotten around to even it. Even if you haven't you like seen you know it, it, you probably know. I felt uh, I didn't see Star Wars until I was eighteen, and by the mm-hmm. time I did, it's like I, the imagery was so pervasive <laughs> in culture. It's like I felt like I had seen it already. I hadn't. Like seen... there were no surprises or details yeah. that I wasn't familiar with already. It was the same thing with me uh, with Wizard of Oz. I didn't see that until I was about eighteen either, right. um, because my mom was so afraid of the flying monkeys as a child, she wouldn't let a VHS of it into the house just and she wouldn't scary, let me watch yeah. it in the living room like it just freaked her out like it traumatized yeah, her as a kid I, I so. didn't, but yeah I watch it it's great yeah, it, great it, movie it is it, yeah it's really scary it's this great wonderful story about a, a young woman played by Judy Garland who uh, good golly the pipes on that woman <laughs> One of the great singers. Oh, oh, yeah. Just Over the Rainbow is one of the heights of cinema. And, yeah, she goes to the technical world of Oz. And it is this weird, bizarre place where there's munchkins and good witches and evil witches. And she has to 
assemble this ragtag group of people and assemble their vital missing vital organs to defeat an evil witch. And then they, interesting way to put it, but yeah. yeah. And then at one point they take opium. And yeah, they, they they take opium. They throw water on the witch. John Waters is born. Uh, <laughs> No, John Waters is actually on record saying the, the the thing that sort of codified his love of cinema was the instant Mar- Margaret Hamilton melted. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's bizarre. It's classical. It's campy. It's sloppy in a really good sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know anything about the production history, good golly, was that a messy film to make? Oh my god! And they uh, went through so many different versions. It's actually not a very faithful adaptation of the story. Oh they no, it is a lot. In, it is incredibly unfaithful. It's one of the examples I point to when people mm-hmm. talk about like, oh, that's not a very people. A lot of people are complaining online right now about like, oh, Iron Man three is still the worst Marvel movie. First off, fuck you. It's so no, good. It's one of the best ones. We're but also, talking about, but people yeah. complain about like you know, oh, they didn't get the Mandarin right. Oh come on. First yeah, of first of all, I'm sorry. That racist caricature wasn't uh, first of all, accurately first of all, yeah, the, translated to screen. First of all, but, the Mandarin is a racist caricature. <laughs> Secondly, the, who the fuck cares about the Mandarin? It's not important. It's like that's uh, what we're yeah. going to rally around the Mandarin. But my point is this: sometimes when you change things, you can make it better. Mm. And I'm talking about a classic of literature here. The movie is better. The movie, the movie is, is the movie is, well, and then, then, that's no slide on the book. The book is the movie, fun. No, the, the book is good. Yeah, but, uh, but like the movie is its mm. own kind of iconic. And when you consider just how sloppily like thrown together it was, and how many different drafts they went through, mm. I read once about the draft that I think it was Joseph Mankiewicz wrote, the guy mm. who co-wrote uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, no, that was Herman Mankiewicz. Sorry, Herman Mankiewicz co-wrote mm. Citizen Kane, but it was a. Uh, um, it, it felt more like a Gilliam film from what it sounded like. Okay. Instead of, like, the witch living in a castle on, like, a mountain. She mm. lived in an office building on a mountain. And, like, oh, right. it was, like, her doing witch paperwork. And there was a sign out front that said, uh, Wicked Witch of the West. Spells, hexes, curses, no solicitors. This means you. Mm. <laughs> and I'm just like, I kind of want to see that version. <laughs> that version sounds awesome, too. Um, but, yeah, just little pieces of it, like, just got found along the way until just... Yeah, the, sometimes the Hollywood studio system works. Yeah, like sometimes the pieces just fall into play. It, it's not often, but sometimes it creates a masterpiece. Yeah, uh, it, it's just a ma- it's it's so difficult for me to comment on the Wizard of Oz mm. because it's just been such an indelible part of my whole life. I, it, it, it's, it's hard to say anything new of, about it. One of, yeah, it's one of the first films I saw multiple times, so it's personally dear to me. Mm. It's been written about ad infinitum. A lot of people have delved into not just the Hollywood lore of it, of the way of its making, of just sort of the way the pieces fell into place, but also its imagery and its iconography. Yeah, the ruby slippers are a symbol for menstruation. I get it. It's been written about. There's nothing I can say other than say that this is sort of a linchpin of all cinema. And yeah. it's just so important that I couldn't make this sort of list without I, putting it at number one. I think it's so obvious that it didn't occur to me. <laughs> I guess part of me yeah. was just like, well, I mean, it's, it's such a linchpin. It feels yeah. like a franchise movie. It did technically have a sequel, but Return to Oz, by the way, totally on my runners up. Uh, real, real fast, mm. I'm just going to list some things because I mm. some of the things I wanted to put on here. Uh, the Sword and the Sorcerer, just mm. gutsy, sex-filled, violent, mm. uh, uh, scuzzy fantasy, and mm. I love it a lot. Uh, Conan the Barbarian is the classy version of The Sword and the Sorcerer. <laughs> the original one, it's a great mm. movie. It works great. Uh, Dragon Slayer, fun movie, Perfect dragon. I haven't seen any of these things. No, yeah. You've seen both. You've seen Conan. I've, I've seen Conan. Yeah. Re, um, for the first time recently. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm going to get you to watch Dragon Slayer. I think you'll like right. it. The movie is good. 
the dragon Vermithrax pejorative best name in movie history. Uh, <laughs> Vermithrax pejorative. That's what you name a dragon, man. That that's, what, that's the only name that for a dragon. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's it's a it's a masterwork of visual effects, and no dragon mm. has ever topped it. I'm, I'm, I'm including the recent stuff that people like. It's incredible. Uh, let's see. Uh, Labyrinth. I love it. Uh, the Secret of Nim I toyed with because, like, the stone is magic. But I eventually mm. decided it's a little it's, bit more it, sci-fi. It's more, Well, it's more of a talking animal film. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's kind of this nebulous thing. It's kind of hard to declare mm. it to be just fantasy. But it's a masterpiece, and it would be my number one if I included it. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I really wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to include, like, more, like, uh, e- uh, Eastern fantasy. Mm. Uh, and I toyed with putting, like, uh, Crouch, Dagger, Hidden Dragon on here mm. and Last of Us. Like, I want to put, like, a wuxia. Uh, a film yeah. but um, I just couldn't find one that just felt just right to me but Last Hurrah for Chivalry Crouch Nigger, Hidden Dragon two wonderful films uh, The Princess Bride it's so lovely and I thought it was just Pretty kind of obvious the, the Princess Bride is like yeah. it, it hurt not to put it on I know and uh, the only and the other film I put, uh, had on my uh, runners up was uh, underappreciated even though every time you bring it up people love it The Witches Oh, the Roll Doll adaptation. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a wonderfully mean oh. movie. And the only thing that kept that out of my top ten, I think the ending is a cop out. The just, the, it's the mega happy ending, and I don't buy the it. The ending is a cop out. I don't like the lead character at all. I mean, it's it, fine. He's supposed to be it's boring. Kind of it's 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 Angelica Houston's movie. I, I I take a little bit of issue with uh, with the witches. First of all, I think there's a like a great version of that movie still waiting to be made. I feel like Nicholas Rogue's version is go- is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Tilda but, Swinton will star in it. and It'll be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it'll be like maybe a little bit more off putting. I feel like uh, this. Oh, is... the little girl in the painting still scares the crap out of me. Oh yeah, that one yeah. little detail where there's this one little girl who's cursed to be in a painting. She never gets out of there. No, she's, she's just she's, doomed for she, eternity. She, she's just dead. It scares the shit yeah, out no, of me. No, no, she's in. A, she's not dead. She's in a painting. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, she might as well be. It's yeah. its own kind of hell. But uh, I know that Raul Dahl was uh, very resolutely against people adapting his work into film. He did not want that to happen. He said, yeah. you know, once once I'm dead, you can start having my and like the yeah. day he died. Yeah, it's like okay, that's it. We're gonna scoop it up. It's like um. Like with Mary Poppins Returns, like P.L. Travers oh, is God. dead. Let's put that into production right away. Now you might notice Mary Poppins didn't end up on either of our lists. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a lot of things I like about that movie. I am still mad. Saving Mr. Banks made me like Mary Poppins less. Yeah. yeah Saving just... Mr. Banks is a mean movie. <laughs> it is a hateful movie. That is a it's, movie it's a corporation makes. It's a, a pro-corporation to, movie. It's a movie yeah. a corporation makes to say that artists' rights are exist to be trampled. Mm. Not adapted. I'm talking. I'm fine with adaptation. But to be trampled, and if the artist doesn't like it, it's their fault. Fuck that movie! I hate that movie. Why did you? Why did you do that movie? Just evil movie. Showed how evil you are. Yeah, Yeah, you're you're taking the magic out of a film I used to like. I still can't believe people that 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 was not roundly rejected. Raul Dahl didn't want anybody making movies out of his books. He said, "No, you can't do it." And then he died. Well, the BFG is quite good, and I like Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox a lot. Fantastic Mr. Fox is fantastic. Original Willy Wonka. I know Raul Dahl didn't care for it, but I think it's great. Uh, There's a really good adaptation of Danny Champion of the World with Jeremy Irons. Oh, uh, it was like a, yeah, it was I haven't like a, seen it. I think I know it was a TV movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen it in many years, but I was I loved it as a child, yeah. and I thought it was a very good, very faithful mm. adaptation. Did a good job. Yeah. Um, be sure to catch the BFG. It was a big bomb when it came out. Nobody, mm-hmm. it's like 
one of the least seen Spielberg movies. And it's but it's it's this he's doing interesting things. Yeah, he's, and, it's a really uh, and people are going to discover doing, that like five ten years from now yeah, and say we were too mean to the BFG. Yeah, he's doing a lot like an interesting thing with special effects. Mark Rylance as mm. as the giant is really terrific. The most incredible fart scene in movie history. <laughs> Se- second, maybe maybe to Blazing Saddles. I got to interview Steven Spielberg, which I got like mm. one question, and I was yeah. just like, okay, we're gonna ask something, and no one's asked. Tell me about like what it's like to make your first fart scene at yeah. th- this point in your career. And he was just like, it is, isn't it? And then I realized I was wrong because 1941 has a fart scene. Oh, does it really? Slim Pickens, man. Slim oh. Christopher Lee is listening. So sorry. Weird fuck. Oh, whatever. It's still a fun question. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, you have any runners up you wanted to mention? Or? Oh, well, The Princess Bride is, mm-hmm. is like a movie that I grew up watching repeatedly, yeah. like so many people my age. Um when it comes to sort of like modern urban fables, I feel like nobody does it better than Tim Burton. Yeah. And, oh, it's uh, weird and, that I have any Tim Burton, isn't it? And yeah, I nearly put his... I think because it's wholly originally his and because it does exemplify sort of his work, Edward Scissorhands would be on there. Oh, that's a good, that's as, a good yeah, one. Sort of yeah, his version, nice. this, this sort of very sensitive Frankenstein story with a creature you don't really see anywhere. Yeah. It's this weird chopping machine turned into a human and it's played and it's played by Johnny Depp and you're not really sure if it's a human that's another one that's arguably sci-fi but it's got such a fable-like quality I think and and I feel like uh, he goes back to sort of those uh, that one and I think The Corpse Bride uh, Mm. Edward Scissorhands and Corpse Bride I think are like the purest visions of what Tim Burton does. Well, ironically, I think Night Before Christmas is too. He just didn't get to direct it. Uh, yeah, it just he was he was under contract it's, it's to do very, Batman Returns, and he couldn't. Night Before Christmas was in production at the same time. It's very Tim Burton. Both. He you know he had a hand in the story. He didn't write it, but he had it in the story. It's like, his it's based idea, on his story, it's based on his poems. Yeah. He, he did have a hand in a lot of the design. It's yeah, yeah, right out of his imagination. But Henry Selick is the director. Yeah, um, it's like it's like when George Lucas gets a lot of credit for Raiders. He deserves a lot of credit for Raiders, but Steven Spielberg made it. Yeah, and uh, who was the screenwriter on that? Not um, uh, Raiders. Of Raiders, what was his name? Oh, it was um, was it wasn't Philip Kaufman? It was uh, Kasdan. Yes, right. Once yeah, Kasdan, yeah. yeah. And um, I think he's got a co-writing credit. Yeah, with, and, with and who, whoever co-wrote, co-wrote it also wrote The Phantom. Uh, really? Which, which uh, yeah, the the Billy Zane movie. And if uh, yeah. if if you watch The Phantom. It's it's a Raiders knockoff oh, it, through and through. Is, and, but to be fair, the Phantom as a character predates predates uh, Indiana Jones. It was probably fact, at least was somewhat responsible. You know, Indiana Jones was like yeah, partially inspired by the Phantom. But, yeah. I loved uh, uh, finding out that uh, a lot of people accused um, Spielberg of. I mean, not accused, but like said that like surely. Uh, Indiana Jones was at least partially inspired by the stories of Tintin, which had been popular mm. worldwide for many, 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 many years before they made those movies. And Spielberg said, actually, no, I didn't know about it until after the movie came out. Mm. And everyone said, this is like Tintin. And I'm like, oh, shit, what did I do? No. And I read it. And I'm like, oh, it's this. And um, mm. yeah, the Tintin movie's fun, too. Anyway, um, anything else? Anything else come to mind oh, you wanted to just quickly uh, name check? Um, uh, no, not right now. Okay. There's a ton of wonderful yeah. fantasy movies. Out. Yeah. Beautiful Creatures. I'll give a quick shout out to Beautiful Creatures. Beautiful that creatures. movie gets a bum rap. I, I, that I movie is, is is delightful and weird, and it's got a great love story that I yeah. buy. Uh, although I think the theology is a little too simple, I, I feel like The Life of Pi is a really ambitious film. Uh, Ang, Lee, yeah. Ang Lee does interesting things. Uh, I think uh, not all of his films are good. In fact, he's made some bad ones, too. Um, oh, yeah. 
Uh, I am one of the defenders of his Hulk movie. I think that's actually really fascinating. We don't deserve that movie. I think that movie is uh, is doesn't necessarily work on a dramatic level, but by God, is it interesting? It's yeah, it's fascinating. Like and, it's a it's a hell of a film. I I feel like the the sort of comic book material. You, I mean, the, the hip thing to do is give it to people who are really reverent to the material and right. try to get it as close to the comic book lore as possible, but also make it dramatic cinematically. Yeah. But I feel it's way more interesting if you give, like, Spider-Man to Julie Taymor. You know, somebody who, <laughs> yeah. has, who has no knowledge of comic books and has no interest in comic books, but... Because they're going to bring a totally new perspective. To I them. want new perspective yeah. once in a while, not all the time, but once in a while, it's good to just sort of. Tim Burton had a new perspective on Batman. Yeah, it's, it's like, based on stuff that it came before, but it was his own thing. Yeah, what, what what would what would a superhero story look like if I set it in a noir universe where there are no heroes? What would a superhero story look like if I set it in the world that took place like a hundred years after the cabinet of Doctor Caligari? That's right, Batman right, right. Returns. Yeah, more or less. Like it, <laughs> that's a bold take. And, and and it took. People loved it. And everybody's out in the streets wearing all their fetish gear. Yeah. Love it. Anyway, uh, that is the Iron List uh, uh, for this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope we gave you some movies. Uh, if you haven't seen them, we hope you watch them. If you have seen them, watch them again. They're good. Um, thank you very much to everybody who voted for this. If you vote for it, you're part of our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we'll put out a new poll uh, for the month of April sometime pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't decided what's going to be on that list, but uh, you, we'll pick four options, and whichever one gets the most votes, that's what we'll do. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want to talk about our selections on this list, if you want to share maybe some fantasy films that we didn't mention that you love that aren't part of the usual franchises, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Blah, blah, uh, be sure to email us letters at critically acclaimed.net. We try to read as many of our emails as we can on the air on our podcast, We've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. Um, am I forgetting anything? Oh, so much more, but just look, look <laughs> us look us up and you can, yeah. you can uh, all right. see all of, all of our shenanigans that we're sort of trying to churn out as much as we can. Anyway, we hope you check out those films if you haven't already. And um, that's the list. <laughs> Stronger ending. That's the list!